Hello and welcome to Oh No, Ross and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal, but take part ourselves. When they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Ross Blotcher, and Carrie's not here today, though she may make a surprise appearance later. But we do have Corey, Corey Doctorow, here to expand our conversation about 5G, conspiracy theory, and a lot of related topics. So let's jump right into it. All right, I'm super excited today to have Corey Doctorow, science fiction writer, technology activist, journalist, blogger, longtime editor at Boing Boing, now blogging at Pluralistic, special advisor to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, co-founder of the UK Open Rights Group. I, I could probably just go on a long time saying all the things you're involved in. I, uh, Welcome, I am one Corey. inch deep and 10 miles wide. Thank you, <laughs> Ross. Uh, it's lovely to be here. It, it's impressive, the the number of projects that you do. So thank you for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. I, I will say say you wrote about our podcast many years ago on Boing Boing mm-hmm. and that was like our first big boost oh good even before we joined the Max Fund Network oh that's really good and when we started our Scientology investigation yeah I remember when that started I have a dear old friend who was raised in the church oh. uh, actually a few and I have always been fascinated by it I mean it has this overlap with the history of internet and digital rights which is sort of where I come in oh. right because the first ever copyright takedown and the first attempt to get the name of anonymous internet users was about leaked Scientology materials that were relayed through an anonymous relay in Finland called anon.pennant.fi. I didn't know any of this. And so, yeah, it was this. It was a thing called Operation Clamshell. Clambake. Clambake. Yeah, I remember it. that. Operation yeah. Clambake. And oh, there was a whole thing about it. And there were some genuinely very weird Scientology documents about how People have past lives as bivalves and how you can invoke lockjaw by talking about bivalves. Yeah, like you can subtly to the preclear be making just the movement with your hands of kind of like I'm doing like sort of the Muppet movement that you do if you got your hand inside of a Muppet. (laughs) And it's supposed to make their jaw uncomfortable. Like the preclear will uh, subconsciously start rubbing their jaw because they'll be thinking back to their lifetime as a clam. So it was one of these very odd things to have come out. And, you know, I think it exposed them to a lot of ridicule at a time when they were already having a a crisis of legitimacy mm-hmm. and they in that i think characteristic way of cults where there's no one to tell the person in charge this is a terrible idea that will make it worse <laughs> right we're like we should just have a war with the internet which you know they did again right that's where the first anonymous hey big anonymous sounds like they were pioneers from. yeah yeah well exactly yes they they uh blazed the trail the ria would follow but yeah it, it was uh i like that was kind of uh, an early area of fascination and in science fiction, you know, there's the Writers of the Future contest, yeah. which was the... Oh, right. L. Ron Hubbard's uh, publishing that's, wing. That's right. And that it was on. the highest cash prize for any science fiction writing. And they yeah. they roped in really respectable science fiction writers to judge it and run the workshops and so on. But there was also this whole creepy, on the one hand, legitimizing it, and on the other mm-hmm. hand, like... There was some proselytizing. There wasn't supposed to be, but there was. And I think a lot of people don't understand the connection until they show up for the award ceremony and they see busts of L. Ron Hubbard in the room. Like, whoa, what's going on here? I mean, that was the whole point of Bridge, their publishing arm, reintroducing his science fiction Mm. 
through the house press instead of through like a regular trade press was that it it was entryism, right? It created a gateway, mm, yeah. You know, yeah. Into, it was like a way for them to run a bunch of ads for Dianetics in the back of Battlefield <laughs> Earth, and you know they were also the nexus of early internet rumors. We're really off the topic here, yeah. but they were they were the nexus <laughs> of early stuff, internet though. rumors about um, how booksellers back in the days when booksellers would price their books with a pricing gun mm-hmm. would open up boxes of books from Bridge. Uh, copies of Dianetics, copies of Battlefield Earth, and find them with their own price stickers already on them. And they realized that shills were clearing out the store stock to boost the numbers yes. yep. to, to get onto the Put charts. them on these uh, bestseller lists. Yeah. So all of that, right? So so that Scientology <laughs> episode really interested me. You Fantastic. Know, the series really interested me. Nobody has ever written us and said, please stop talking about Scientology on board. Yeah, sure. It's I mean, it is endlessly, the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, endlessly interesting. Do you so, know, in Heinlein's that. authorized biography, they talk about how... So Heinlein was in a polyamorous marriage with a woman who called herself a white witch named Leslin, okay. who was hooked up with the JPL oh, Rowleyites. Oh, okay. Through the Jack Parsons yeah. group. Okay. And she was a story doctor and uh, apparently struggled with alcoholism. And when Hubbard was discharged from the Navy, he came and lived with them. And she had an affair with him yes. and brought him out to the Parsons people. And then he started dating Jack Parsons, significant other, right. ran off with her, they married. So yes, all of this weird sex and <laughs> LA and Pasadena and science fiction and Scientology stuff all kind of wraps around. I, and I love it. Well, here we were going to start talking about 5G and you're, right. already, you're already getting a taste for how this conversation sure, is going to yes. go. Sorry, let's but, talk about 5G. No, I think that's delightful. Hopefully. You brought up Scientology, to I, be fair. You I, brought up Scientology. It wasn't Completely my fault. Yeah, yeah. So one of the reasons I'm really excited to talk to you today is just because you have your thumb on so much going on in the digital space with rights management, copyright, but also 5G. And you reached out to to Carrie and then to myself when we started talking about 5G, because I think what we can provide in this conversation is a little bit of sympathy for the conspiracy theorist crowd related to a lot of our investigations. But you made a really interesting point that I think is a good starting point for this conversation. And that's about the sort of misplaced anger that is sort of justifiable against these giant telecom companies and what they do in terms of raising prices with obsolete technology and kind of forcing all of us to stick with our cable, our DSL, what have you, this aging infrastructure at just barely acceptable levels when we have a clear, better technology for wired internet, and that's fiber. And so you you pointed this out that they correctly advocate for that within these 5G groups. They're upset at the, the actions of these telecom companies, but they get kind of sucked down this rabbit hole, this little diversion to talk about radio frequency radiation. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can kind of clarify the point that you were making just about w- what it is that they're really upset about. So I think you, you've introduced it very well, and not to butter you up, but when I tell people to listen to your podcast, the thing I say is, There are lots of people who make fun of people with cuckoo beliefs, Mm -hmm. but you don't make fun. You laugh with, not at, and that you're very compassionate. And both of you are alive to the value of being in a community, even a fringe community. You all both have your own history with it. Mm -hmm. And that empathy and sympathy, I think, is what makes your show not just let's laugh at the people who have ignorant and foolish beliefs, but actually like a bridge into those communities and understanding what they deliver. And like to the extent that any of them are dangerous or bad, it helps us diagnose the attraction, which might help us craft 
responses, right? If like if your theory of why people join these groups is they're stupid and stupid people do stupid things, then right. you're done, right? Yeah, yeah. Stupid people aren't going to get not stupid. Well, so. thank goodness I'm not stupid. Right, right. And then you're done. Yeah. So yes, it doesn't <laughs> defend you against falling into one of these. You're right. That's an excellent point. But it certainly doesn't help you get anyone else out of it. Or, right. You yeah. Know. It's horrible for outreach. Yeah. And so- Well, thank you. I, I'm a great fan, as I know Carrie is, of a book by Anna Merlin called Republic of Lies, which is a book about uh, conspiratorialism. Mm-hmm. And Merlin makes this really excellent point that people- who adopt conspiratorial beliefs generally are dealing with some form of trauma and that trauma has caused them to distrust officialdom, usually for good reasons. So she talks about, Merlin talks about the conspiratorial belief among black people in New Orleans that there was a levy dynamited during the Katrina flood to specifically flood out black neighborhoods to spare white neighborhoods. Oh, and, okay. And the evidence is not good for it. I mean, I, I don't pretend to be an expert on levies, but uh, <laughs> but Merlin cites a bunch of credible sources that say this probably didn't happen, but it did happen in Tupelo, Mississippi in the 20s. Oh, right. And okay. the people who live in New Orleans who believe in this have grandparents who were dispossessed and whose lives were destroyed and uprooted okay. by this, right? And so... So correct story, but wrong location and time. Yeah, and it is not crazy in that context to believe that the Army Corps of Engineers, when a city in the region is facing a flood, would drown a black neighborhood to spare a white neighborhood. Mm. It's not crazy to believe that because mm-hmm. it happened, mm-hmm. right? And the same way, if your epistemology of your 5G conspiracy is the telecoms companies are greedy they don't care who Check. they hurt. Check. Their <laughs> regulators are asleep at the switch and largely captured. Mm-hmm. The scientific materials they produce about the benefits and harms of their technologies aren't trustworthy and are self-serving and involve academics who are captured and <laughs> who write things that aren't true. All of those things are true. Yeah, It's just the thing that's not true is that 5G will give you cancer. Right. The thing that is true is that it was probably a bad idea to allocate 5G spectrum bands that are adjacent to air traffic bands mm-hmm. and then approve the use of low-quality software-defined radios that frequently spike into other bands, nearby bands, in 5G contexts to be used near airports where uh, it might interfere with air traffic control. And the carriers absolutely 100% knew it or should have known it, and they plowed ahead with it. And it does, in fact, put people at enormous risk. And it's not wrong, right? And by yeah. the same token, and this, I found this very interesting because hmm. I didn't know that 5G weirdos were also fiber stands because I'm a big fiber stand. Uh-huh. So that was that was interesting. <laughs> yeah. And they're not wrong to say- So like, oh, we found common cause. We, <laughs> we agree on this 100%. issue. Let's yeah, work yeah. together to get yeah. fiber rollout. It's like listening to a Marianne Williamson interview. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff I agree <laughs> with you about. Some that was good. Mm, yeah. Well, now you yeah. are well, there. And you know what? Like, that's how you get stuff done, right? You find yeah. common cause with people. Right. So oh, here's the stuff we can do together. Let's get that done. Then we can, you know, let's all march in the same direction until we find ourselves marching in different directions. Sure. Yeah. 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 And so the this thing about fiber, where like they're part of the thesis implicitly. I didn't hear you say this explicitly, but I think implied in all of this was the reason that we don't have fiber to the curb is because the carriers are suppressing it. 
I think that's also true, mm. right? It's not true because they want to give us cancer with radios, right? Right. It's because the amortization schedule for making fiber to the curb profitable is like a 10 to 15 year schedule. Whereas and there are short-term profits to be had in extending- 100%. And dragging out the existing infrastructure. And even more so, the industry is that movements in the industry share prices are controlled by a small number of analysts at large firms. Those analysts have let it be known and have- oftentimes downrank the shares of companies that make 10-year amortization CapEx investments. And they say five years is the horizon that we'll consider investments at. And the executives at these firms have a significant fraction of their compensation, if not the majority, in shares. Yeah. So literally, you could take an 85% pay cut for investing in something profitable that is only profitable at the 10-year mark instead of the five-year mark. Right. And the true incentive that we've all aligned ourselves with is the shareholder. Yeah, absolutely. How do we increase income for the shareholder? Maybe we need to step back just for a second to talk about fiber and what it is. Yeah. I I think most people have an understanding of this, but we're talking about wired internet connection. And right now, kind of most homes are served by copper. Mine Mm -hmm. is. I have a cable internet Mm -hmm. connection. I had DSL for many years. Mm -hmm. I live in an apartment complex where that's my only option. I get spectrum. Yeah. (laughs) That's the whole spectrum of my choices. Right. And and fiber is not a brand new technology. It's been around since the 70s. Yeah. And it's optical. We were talking about, mm-hmm. you know, different points along the electromagnetic spectrum uh-huh. and, you know, visible light can communicate data incredibly and fast. travels at the speed, the speed of, of light. light. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. And all it takes is infrastructure to get that out to people. And, and yeah, that's expensive. It requires the installation fee. But thank goodness we have some legislation both here in California, but also at the federal, federal level. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, with the Build Back Better, the well, oh, no, more the specifically, bill. yeah, the infrastructure bill. The one that actually passed. Yes, right. Yeah. It got stripped down enough that it had just the, at least some good pieces. I mean, maybe the people in the future are like, what do you mean Build Back Better didn't pass? That was the turning point for our democracy. <laughs> but, but I don't think that's true, <laughs> unfortunately. Oh, oh. Well, at least a part of that initiative uh, that did get passed, and, right. and we'll see rural communities and hopefully everybody yeah. uh, get service. But we'll, we'll get into... Well, let's talk about the physics yeah. a little. Yeah. And let's note... This is like a, a land acknowledgement. We are standing on a piece of fiber right now because we're in Burbank. Under our feet. Oh, my dowsing rods picked that up. Yeah. <laughs> and Burbank has it's a fiber right loop, which you've used at the office because that's Disney's fiber. Yeah. Uh, it's a 100 gigabit fiber loop. It was financed by a public bond. Every year I write a check to the city for my taxes. We are speaking from Burbank where we live. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Disney's less than a mile away that's from right. us here. My, my wife, wife works there. Yep. I walk her to the gates. So it's a, it's a nice, easy walk. But, you know, Universal and Warner are also in the neighborhood. They get their fiber from there. So the fiber's there. Oh, yeah. The franchise deal with Charter Spectrum, who give you your internet and me mine, uh-huh. prohibits them from terminating that in a residential premise. Mm. So it passes under my foundation slab. I pay $130 a month for copper. That is literally... I think it's it's one ten thousandth the speed. I forget how many zeros. So I have nominally a gig down and 300 megs up, but I rarely get more than half of that. Oh, that's much better than than my connection. I just tested this morning, 130 megabits per second download and like a 10 megabit per second upload. And you work in media production, right? right? As do so many of our neighbors. I'm running Zoom calls every day and recording them. It's really something. So here's the thing about both copper and fiber that you need to understand is distinct from wireless. Wireless has its place. I'm an advocate for it, but it's there's a huge distinction here, which is that within the insulated wire or the discrete piece of fiber, you have like a parallel universe of electromagnetic spectrum that mm. is reserved within that. That isn't, you know, normally like- Because it's to shielded. Share yeah, we have to share spectrum. If I'm talking and you're talking, the voices collide, mm-hmm. right? 
if we put a soundproof box around each of ourselves, you say whatever you want, cone you of say silence. whatever you want. There's no, there's no collision, right? We can be very loud. And so we have like a universe to ourselves mm-hmm. in that wire. And the universe might be very expansive in the case of fiber. It's got a lot of bandwidth. It might be fairly narrow in the case of copper, but that is a distinct difference to wireless where all the wireless shares one universe, the universe that we're in, right? Right. There are ways to manage that efficiently. So one of the cool things about 5G is it's very quiet. It's low mm-hmm. power, which means that you can put two radios pretty close to each other and have them talk in the same spectrum. And because they're so quiet, and you, you talked about the tunable antennas, the, the Yeah, they can actually be directional. That can be directional, yeah. yeah that's so super cool. Super cool. And also, like, there's more stuff on the horizon. There's a whole body called uh, cognitive radio that was founded by David Reed, who was one of the inventors of TCPIP, where you use phased array antennas, which are these tunable antennas, software-defined radios, which are the radios that are in all of our devices that don't use a quartz crystal, but they use an oscillator and software, digital signal processing Is this part of the 6G specification? No, it's like, this is what's in your phone right now. Really? You don't have a a quartz crystal in your phone. You have a software, an SDR. You have a software-defined radio. Okay. With the right software, you can have tunable antennas and software-defined radios that locate a band that's free locate a path through space where that band is free and tune a signal through that path through space in that band that is not being used. And there's a lot of like hard technical problems. Mm -hmm. There's something (laughs) called the hidden transmitter problem. Like what if there's a transmitter between me and you that's having a conversation with the receiver between me and you and that conversation is so quiet that neither of us can sense it and we assume the band is free. But it does free us from these things like exclusive bandwidth allocations Mm -hmm. where we just say, oh, well, this band, you know, 900 megahertz is for like, you know, it's the public band, it's the the part 15 band. And then uh, this other bandwidth, this is just for like dispatching police cars. Yeah, You don't need to do that. And, you know, it's like the difference between being able to steer and being stuck on rails yeah it sounds a little bit like uh, air traffic control or something you know like yeah you can have multiple planes in the air just make sure they're not going to collide that's right so yeah you can you can reserve space between them but then we do have a lot of space that we reserve between it's an excellent analogy it's space that we reserve between uh, aircraft mm-hmm. but we don't reserve it permanently we don't say like here's the jet blue <laughs> corridor between burbank airport and jfk right and nothing can cross it even when there's not a jet blue plane in the sky <laughs> right, right? right that that is uh dynamically allocated so okay. you can dynamically allocate and deallocate. So all that stuff is really cool. But foundationally, when you put something inside an insulated pipe, then you get your own universe to play with. Mm. And when you put something in free space, then you have to play nice with your neighbors, right? Right. And that means that you get many orders of magnitude larger throughput from the best wired connections like fiber than you do from the best wireless connections. Because you don't have to be devoting all of this time and resource to creating tunnels through the air that aren't That's affecting right. everybody else. And, you know, even where we, we see like really promising results, like sometimes you'll see a result where someone will say, oh, we've got, we've managed to get a hundred gigabit wireless signal. What they don't say is... Mm. That took up a lot of bandwidth, and we can't put two of them in the same place. And that's almost like those um, miles per gallon estimates where, well, that was optimal conditions. Sure, but imagine if miles per gallon, well, I guess it does. Miles per gallon went down the more people there were who had cars. Mm. So Mm -hmm. the more Starlink users there are, the worse ah, Starlink gets, ah, yeah. right? It's Referring like, to that Elon Musk initiative yeah. to have the combination. Yeah, or satellite or whatever. Yeah, okay. all, of the, all of those things because they share a, they share a spectrum, right? Yeah. And they yeah. share a footprint. Satellites share pretty big footprints. And there's uh, security implications to that as well. Sure, although you... ideally encryption sorts that out. But I mm-hmm. mean, at least at the data layer, the physical layer, you're right that if you knock out a satellite that serves a lot of people, then you knock it out for a lot of people. So you're saying underneath our feet right now here in Burbank. Under this foundation 
foundation slab that our chairs are currently perched upon. There's fiber connection that's a thousand fold faster than what? More than a thousand fold. It's been a while since I did the Amazing. Map. It's a hundred gigabit. No, I beg your pardon. You're right. It's a hundred gigabit and I have one gigabit. So no, it's, okay. a, it's 200 times faster than my general throughput, but my upload, it's 600 times faster mm. than my nominal upload speed. And 1,200 times faster than my usual upload speed. Wow. Well, if you want to get some shovels, I can help you dig down. That's how that works, right? You just tap into it. All you got to do is tap it. It's like like, uh, like tapping into the water main. That's right. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And it's kind of good news in the sense that, like, it tells us that we just need a small policy change to get that going. Mm -hmm. The thing is that mostly fiber is economical, like a lot of other universal service infrastructure, it's mostly economical when it's closely associated with municipalities or states, okay. right? Gas mains, electric service, the, these are usually provided at least originally by a state. Sometimes the state creates a monopoly for a firm. So like AT&T had a universal oh. service obligation, but they had a monopoly that came as a part of it. But in general, like it's a heavily regulated usually publicly provisioned or Mm -hmm. public-private provisioned service. And the carriers hate this, right? They like getting public subsidies. They don't like having public duties, (laughs) right? right? And so they are generally not very bullish on fiber to the curb. They like fiber loops for like infrastructure Mm -hmm. because how do you make 5G fast unless it's connected to fiber, right? So so that's something that you commented on that I was totally not even thinking about. I just kind of assumed if you're going to have a bunch of 5G antennas around everywhere, that they're going to be connected to a fiber backbone. Well, if they are, then then you get the benefits of it. But if they're not, like if they're doing peer-to-peer sharing, Mm -hmm. well, say goodbye to all those low latency benefits. And also now some of your electromagnetic spectrum that could be used for servicing terminals like phones and computers and robotic surgical arms or whatever is being used for point-to-point connections. Okay. Right? So they want fiber, but they don't want us to have fiber. Right? They want to create a regime in which they don't have to bear the expense of wireline infrastructure maintenance. Charter hates having to pay for all the copper that they've got strung up around the city. And we Mm -hmm. should talk about Frontier and what they did in their collapse. Oh, yeah. That's a really, I think, instructive cautionary tale. Yeah. So Frontier was the worst carrier in America. When AT&T bought a bunch of other carriers and was forced to sell off some of their lines, they bought those lines. Okay. So they bought all these rural underserved areas in the Midwest and elsewhere, but mostly in the Midwest, and then just proceeded to starve them. And they starved them to the point where they actually went bankrupt at the start of the pandemic. But it was only after like years and years of being humiliated and embarrassed. A Minnesota politician, it might have even been Klobuchar when she was in state government. Hmm. Maybe it was the attorney general in Minnesota published uh, like a rogues gallery of terrible frontier wiring Hmm. that was like literally like wires wrapped in newspaper, dipped in tar, and draped over shrubs, wow. right? Wow. And when Frontier went bust, it had to publish its books. Not only did we get to see the outside view of what it was like to be a Frontier customer, which is miserable, but you got to experience the inside view of what it was like to be a Frontier customer, mm. or, or the, of what it was like to be a Frontier executive. Mm. And they they had all of those perverse incentives. They did not want to make 10-year investments. They had done internal studies where they said they could put fiber in a million households and make a billion dollars, so but it would take a decade. That's what's fascinating is that it would be profitable eventually. Yeah, a billion dollars in profit over a decade. Okay. Right. But they wouldn't do it because their executives would have taken giant pay cuts in the form of a reduced share price because analysts don't like long term bets. 
really tellingly, they had a million customers who had no other option. Most Americans have a duopoly option, cable or, or right. DSL. Right. They had a million customers who didn't have a cable option. They just had a DSL option from Frontier. Okay. They booked them as an asset because they could under-maintain and overcharge <laughs> for that. <laughs> well, they have no other choices. So. Right. So the carriers would like to run a business where they get to decide when and how you get upgraded. They want to run a business where they can charge you by the bit. And this is, this is a big difference between 5G and having even DSL in your home is that generally our DSL isn't metered, or if it is, the, the cap is very, very high. Most of us don't ever hit our DSL cap okay. or cable cap. But we're all accustomed to data caps on our wireless. Mm -hmm. Like even if you have a really generous wireless plan, I use Google Fi, which is, it's called an MVNO where they fuse together a bunch of other wireless network, mobile virtual network operator. Okay. So they, like you're either on T-Mobile or Sprint or Verizon or whatever, depending on which is strongest. And it's they just do global, handshakes in the background. That's right. And okay. they do global roaming. Okay. Uh, cool. And you get, I think it's like six gigs a month. So it's a lot. That's great, but I can go through six gigs. Like if I'm not, if I'm on the road mm -hmm. and not using internet from a wire. Yeah. Well, and it just seems so inefficient to make that the backbone of your internet. Sure. Sure. I mean, it's, it's handy to not have to figure out a Wi-Fi password when you're <laughs> somewhere else. And it's nice if you're in the back of a cab I, yeah. to go to a UN meeting in uh, December in Katowice, Poland. And for complicated reasons, I had to take a cab from Warsaw, which is $300, uh, 300 euros. Oh, no. And wow. like three and a half hours in a snowstorm in a <gasps> tiny skoda with bald tires but i was online the whole time <laughs> okay and it didn't cost me a dime extra but then i hit my cap pretty quick like two weeks on mm. the road and i hit my cap really easily and then if what do they do they throttle you after they that? throttle you or you pay i think it's 10 bucks a gig okay at home as much as i resent my charter spectrum service they've never said you've used all your data mm. and we use a lot of data in this house yeah, right? yeah and so they would love like it's very hard for wireline carriers to cap your data every time they do it people get really angry there is a norm among people who pay for wireline subscriptions that we think we've bought all you can eat data, right? Mm -hmm, right. And, and then you just live your life accordingly. And that's you right. Hope to not think about it. Yeah. You know, you put in another Sonos speaker and don't ask how many bits it's going to siphon off your DSL modem, right? Right. And wireless, we all just take it for granted that we're going to get charged by the bit. And so I think the carriers would love to move us to a wireless fixed wireless 5G service and then say, well, as everybody knows with wireless, you pay by the bit, right? Yeah. And we can make, we can charge you for extra. You know, one of the things that um, characterized the very start of the internet debate was this debate over circuit switching and packet switching. Mm. Circuit switching is traditional phone lines. Packet switching is how the internet works. And the advantage of packet switching from the carrier's perspective, from AT&T's perspective, because they were the carrier at the mm -hmm. time, is that um, you can't really add services at the edge, right? Like if you want to add caller ID to the network, you have to install it at the central office. Oh. Like, do you remember when caller ID was invented and it cost 70 cents a month to find out who was calling right, you, right. right? I can't install software on my phone that tells your phone who's calling, right? Okay. Only Bell can do it. And if Bell can do it, then they can charge by the service, right? I call it like the urinary tract infection business model, okay. right? Like service doesn't flow in a nice, healthy gush. It comes in like a painful dribble and everything costs a dime, uh -huh. right? They want to nickel and dime you. They want to charge you for all kinds of services that today you get for free. That has always been part of the carrier model. It's what the network neutrality fight is about. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, it's like we think that we should be able to package all you can eat Google plus 
$1 a month gets you all you can eat Facebook, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like that's the, that's the idea. And then we can turn around to Facebook and we can say like, if you want to be in the Google tier, you've got to give us $10 million a month and we'll put you in the Google basic package. Right. Otherwise you're going to be in a a, a premium tier. Even that, you know, at least is like an a la carte service. uh, Right. Whereas they want to bundle it all together. And then they'll bundle it with the SPN. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So that's the, that's the carrier's historic stance mm-hmm. i mean i guess there's some people who call me conspiratorial for it like to assert, ascribe it to them but i yeah. i mean it well it's I, what they tell people and it's pretty you see it when you look at the book say of you know like you were just talking about with, frontier yeah. yeah with frontier but also the incentives are clear yeah but, and that's one of the things that always frustrates me is because then now like you said, we're sort of in the situation where we sound like the conspiracy theorists. Sure. Because our voices are getting louder and we're complaining yeah, yeah. about, and, you And, know, you know, like, this is where I, I have sympathy for conspiracy theorists. Because sometimes conspiracies do yeah. happen. You know, when people come to me and they say, pharmacy companies are super corrupt, I'm like, right on. They just want to make a buck. And I'm like, you're right. They don't care who they kill. And I'm like, yes, sir. And they say, and that's why I'm not getting vaccinated. I'm like, wait, whoa, I thought whoa, we were talking whoa. about opioids. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that there is an unresolvable epistemological crisis in the collapse of the credibility of our institutions that is not the product of conspiratorial thinking, but of corruption. Okay, so corruption is maybe the real target The word here. that I would use here, yeah. yeah. Monopolies. Monopolies. Well, monopolies make corruption easier, right? So corruption requires that value change hands. And that nobody who is in a position to do something about it blocks it. Mm-hmm. So when industries are very concentrated, it's very easy for them to decide on what to do, right? Like there's that infamous photo of Trump at the top of Trump Tower around that like leatherette boardroom table with all the tech executives. Oh, right. In 2017. People look at that and they're like, how can these, you know, paragons of liberal democracy sit down with Trump? And I'm like, oh, all right, whatever. I'm like, how is it that everybody they in charge all, of the internet fits around one table? They fit in one t- yeah. you, you made that point in your book, which I should mention, uh, How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism. Yeah. We'll be talking on a lot of those themes in this conversation. Yeah. Uh, highly recommend it because it's very, it's very quick, very readable, and it, it outlines a lot of these factors that we're talking and, about. And, you know, fundamentally, the thesis is, okay, if everyone can gather around a table, they might, right? And... If you have a monopoly, like the reason firms like monopolies is because you can extract what economists call monopoly rents, higher than competitive profits, Mm -hmm. because you don't have to compete, you know? And if you have a lot of money and you can agree on how to spend it, then you can distort policy. And policy is really important because we live in a world in which it is impossible for any individual to know how to navigate really important policy questions that are very central to your daily life. Right. I I like how you made that case in the book that we just, by necessity, we have to rely on the expertise of people managing the buildings that we are in and that they're up to code and that our water isn't going to poison us. And that dinner won't kill you by breakfast. And that, you know, again, we're just around the corner from Burbank Airport. Southwest flies like dozens of Boeing 737 Maxes out of that airport every day. Are we going to get in that plane and fly in it? Mm -hmm. Given that Boeing suborned its regulators at the FAA, skimped on safety, killed hundreds of people and had their planes fall out of the sky. That plane, that model plane, which they have then brought back to the factory, Hmm. remediated and announced that it is fixed, but they haven't said what they've changed about the process by which they determined that it was safe and the process by which they were overseen that makes this pronouncement about its safety more credible than huh. the pronouncement about its safety before they started falling out of the sky. So it's opaque and they're allowed to be opaque. And and then we're in crisis, right? Because we have to figure out 
a whole bunch of things that we can't solve. Like, you're a smart guy. You could probably go and figure out aviation safety, spend 10 years at it. Yeah, I was going to say, let me just carve out a few years of my life for that. I'm sure you could do it, right? (laughs) Like, I've heard you do your investigations. 100% sure that you have it in you to do that. Then you also need to be a food safety expert to figure out whether or not you can trust your dinner. And if your kid's going in the Burbank Unified School District, you have to be a pedagogist and figure out whether distance (laughs) education is going to make your kid an ignoramus during the next lockdown. So to survive in this society, we have to externalize those specialties, that knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, you need a heuristic for being able to resolve contradictory claims about whether or not things are safe, whether yeah. or not things are good. Right. And the historic heuristic is we have referees, regulators, who adjudicate contradictory claims from different interested parties. The referees themselves are disinterested. They mm-hmm. recuse themselves when they have conflicts. They show their working when they resolve the conflicts that are brought before them about what the best way to do something is. And um, they have a process for revisiting their conclusions, right? They do something that looks like a lot like Science. peer review at a scientific Yeah, yeah. 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 And the reality is the FAA just sort of rubber stamped what Boeing told them. The agencies stall like crazy when you try to get them to tell you how they arrived at their conclusions. Hmm. You look at uh, the net neutrality debate under Ajit Pai, under the Trump administration, where they got millions of obviously fake comments, comments from dead people, comments from sitting senators who supported net neutrality, comments from there were like one million random string at Pornhub.com comments that were all identical that briefed for... Uh, dismantling net neutrality. And Ajit Pai, who is a former Verizon lawyer and was the chairman of the FCC, said, well, we can't tell the good comments from the bad ones. We're just going to take them all at face value. And obviously the public doesn't want net neutrality. And he got rid of the net neutrality order. Right? So, you know, like the the process is visibly cooked, Mm -hmm. right? And so maybe sometimes they get it right. I mean, I do think vaccines are safe. But if you ask me to explain to you why I trust the science around vaccines and don't trust the science around opioids. So I have a chronic pain problem. I was prescribed opioids and took them for a while and then thought, I keep hearing stuff about opioids and I know my doctor keeps telling me they're safe, Hmm. but I think that like taking tramadol every night for the rest of my life might be bad. So something overrode your kind of implicit trust in I was basically an anti-vaxxer for opioids, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, a couple of years later- Doing your own research. Yeah, and a couple of years later, the Sacklers are in disrepute and we're like, God, they they lied about the safety of opioids. People who do have chronic pain and use opioids to manage it are in a double bind now because mm. they're being denied the opioids that they were taking safely. Like everything is worse, right? And so wow. I couldn't tell you what it is, what rule of thumb I'm following that leads me to trust the process that arrived at a stamp of approval for vaccine safety. Mm-hmm. That differentiates it from the process, except maybe that the scrutiny is higher. I feel like maybe the opioid stuff happened in the shadows and gradually became more prominent. And then the vaccine stuff, all eyes were on it. Maybe there was fewer opportunities for shenanigans, although there have been a bunch of shenanigans, not in vaccine safety, but in vaccine patent regimes where yeah. the WTO should be having a waiver for it. They're not. There are the, all these crazy... So th- this brings up one of the, I think, most frustrating issues. You know, Carrie and I talk about these conspiracy theories and mm-hmm. kind of the primary concerns. And we'll often address the pseudoscientific aspects of those debates. But what makes me really uncomfortable is that, well, first of all, those are kind of sidelining the discussion. Mm-hmm. So there are legitimate, you know, things to complain 
complain about and try to fix and special interests that need to be busted. But we can't talk about that because sure. we're trying to debunk some basic miscarriage of science here. Like, I think Bill Gates has done some terrible things related right. to the vaccine. So that's the, <laughs> just not the things they think he's done. Yeah, right. So that's the other thing is that then I'm often put in the uncomfortable position of being an apologist for Bill Gates right. and George Soros and Big Pharma and, you know, like all of these other things where, yeah, okay, yes, there are many bad things that Monsanto has done. Let's agree on that. But right. you know, this particular And there's point. a wonderful book that I am halfway through reading by David Graeber and David Wengrove. And it's David Graeber's last book. He died of COVID. And it's called The Rise of Everything. He's an anthropologist and Wenger's uh, archaeologist. And it's a history of different communities from the prehistoric age. And it's aimed at kind of repudiating the largely evidence-free assertion that we were like, we went through hunter-gatherer and then we became agriculturalists and developed hierarchy and so on. And they just show that the historic record on that is a lot richer. Oh. But there's a wonderful chapter in it on what they call schismogenesis, which is the way that cultures define themselves in opposition to other cultures. Hmm. And one of the examples they give is Southern Californian tribes versus Pacific Northwestern tribes. They had lots of contact with each other. This is pre, pre-Columbian, right? Okay, yeah. They had lots of contact with each other. They could communicate with each other. They traded with each other. And they were very different. One kept slaves, the other one didn't. One was nomadic, the other one was largely settled. I mean, no. there are all these different things. And, and they say that the thing that explains this and that's pattern that recurs wherever you go is that each one defined themselves as being not like the other one. Our leaders are the kind of leaders who mm. show their leadership by never getting in the dirt and doing labor. Our leaders are the kinds of leaders who show their fitness for leadership by doing the manual feats of strength, by doing manual work better than anyone else can, right? So and whatever the distinction is, that becomes a point of pride. A hundred percent. And you know- We're Springfield, you're Shelbyville. <laughs> yeah. And I'm a leftist. I grew up in a leftist household. Those are my politics. And I have a lot of friends who during the GW Bush years and the war on terror and before were very rightfully suspicious of the so-called intelligence community and worried about mass surveillance mm -hmm. Worried about its role in neutralizing activist movements and the infamous letter from the FBI to Martin Luther King telling him to kill himself, right. and all this stuff. Yeah. And then Trump gets elected, and you know, spooks don't like him for their own reasons, for reasons that are not my reasons for not liking him. Mm -hmm. And um, all of a sudden, a bunch of people who I thought of as being on quote my side are like, actually, I love the intelligence community. Like James Comey is not a nice guy. <laughs> like, you can swear on your podcast, right? Yeah. James Comey's a piece of shit, right? <laughs> James Comey lied to Congress about NSA mass surveillance. That's why Snowden leaked, because he watched his boss get up and lie to Congress about mass surveillance. And he there's making the, the and... public issue of Hillary's emails right before the election. All of that stuff. But even before that, like, you don't, but that's electoral politics. I'm just talking yeah. about all the stuff before that, right? I'm like talking his about his actual day that, job. Yeah, his, his like actual record on small p politics, on mm. human rights, surveillance, liberatory movement, and their legitimacy and the democratic right to carry them on and so on. He is an authoritarian servant of reaction who spent his whole career helping people who I think are poisoning the planet and bad for us as a species maintain their grip on power. Yeah. And to watch people who marched, literally marched with me in the streets on this issue, huh. getting James Comey vote of candles, you know, wow. was, and it's schismogenic, wow. right? Because hmm. they're the kinds of people who don't like James Comey. So that means I have to be the kind of person who does ah. like James Comey. And I wrote an essay about this called Schismogenesis. And I said, to be a good faith, intelligent critic, you have to eschew Schismogenesis. Break and out of the enemy of my enemy is my yeah. friend kind of logic. You have to be able to say, Bill Gates is a jerk about vaccines 
for reasons different from yours. So I guess what we're saying is we have to break out of these bundled cable systems and get a la carte, That's right, all where, la carte. Where we can say, okay, well, I, and even with an individual, you, you have to be able to say, okay, I agree with you on this about Bill Gates, but right. he's doing good work on this issue. Right, know? right. Well, there's that too. But also like, I think people are worried that if you go out and you say, Bill Gates is engaged in a conspiracy related to vaccines, that that's where it stops. And they're like, oh yeah, he wants to put microchips in them. As opposed to, mm. he wants to block uh, WTO patent waiver on them the way he did with the patent waiver on anti-AIDS drugs when South Africa was seeking one in the late 80s and early 90s, Mm, um, which the Gates Foundation spearheaded the movement against it. I came in at the tail end of that as a delegate at the World Intellectual Property Organization when we were working on the Access to Medicines Treaty under James Love, who's an ex-Naderite, really good guy, runs an NGO called um, Knowledge Ecology International. And he's got hair-raising stories about Gates people handing out brochures that are basically, you know, kind of racist dog whistles Mm. saying like, brown people are too stupid to make their own vaccines anyway. We should just charitably give them antiretrovirals on terms that make sense for the manufacturer and not have this patent waiver program where this was the AIDS era. These have since been repeated, not by Gates, but ironically, Howard Dean, who I campaigned for, who now is a med lobbyist, has basically said like, well, it doesn't matter if you have a patent waiver, it's a distraction because these countries lack the whatever, the wherewithal to make them. Like just completely ignoring- Real racist implications there to the- The Global South has the best um, public health programs in the world, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa, where they had the AIDS epidemic and Ebola right they have like really advanced contact tracing they have really advanced labs they have the largest vaccine production facility in the world is in india Mm. you know like Mm -hmm. they are they have domestic capacity and they could build more moderna says it takes four months to stand up an mrna factory so all of these objections are easily dealt with pretexts okay and the racist subtext is i think a convincer like i'm not saying he's a racist i'm just saying he's willing to weaponize racism to serve his corporate masters and i think that's the corruption yeah I think that is the corruption of of Bill Gates. That's interesting. That almost, I think, points towards maybe an avenue for connecting with the conspiracy theorists Mm -hmm. to say, hey, all right, well, let's bash on Bill Gates for a bit. You know, we can agree on these things. Maybe this. Let's talk about the real stuff. This other piece, yeah, exactly. Let's let's get the pseudoscience out of it and let's talk on reality based. Uh, and channels. I don't. I think that's a lovely strategy. I don't know that it would work. I can't even think of an example of it having worked. So I tried it. Right, I was at a an event. I had a book out. I think around two thousand and nine, and I was on tour with it. And I went to a university in British Columbia, UBC, and I spoke to a group of people, and we had a great event, and then we had the Q and A, and someone asked me about nine eleven truthing, and I tried this tactic. I said, look, we know a lot about George Bush and what he's done, right? He started a war on a lie. Mm -hmm. Um, I forget how many people had died by then, but I had the figure to hand. It was in the hundreds of thousands. It's larger now. The war has spread into multiple countries. It's destabilized whole regions. And then at home, he has created the abomination of the First Amendment zone and ended protest at the site of political significance. So I've established we're we're kind of on the same wavelength here. I'm like, why do you need to reach to something that I'm not even going to say it's wrong? Why do you need to reach to something so controversial to indict George W. Bush? Mm. Right? Like, You've why got do we plenty need to... of material yeah. that why we know we... about. Why do we need to talk about how the towers fell? I think that there's enough material to put George Bush away as a war criminal, as someone who committed crimes against humanity, torture, invasion, mass surveillance, all of these things, you know, opening Gitmo. Like, I think that there's enough to doom him to be remembered historically as a great monster 
without having to resolve this other question. So you offered this kind of as an olive branch. What yeah. was the response? He was like, I think you know better than that. Okay. And I was like, I, I don't. Like, I was trying to be nice. Yeah. But, you know, you're cuckoo. Like, this is you're this is wrong. Like, 9-11 wasn't an inside job. Okay. And I could see maybe someone in the conspiracy theorist community at least taking the pieces that they like out of your, yeah. your missive there and, and adopting that within their fold. But and, and, you know, like, I think if you want to indict 9-11, you say, look, the Patriot Act was introduced really quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was three weeks. And it's really long, like three, 400 pages. And I'm skeptical that it was drafted in that time. And I don't think that that means that they knew 9-11 was coming and so they drafted the Patriot Act. I think that there is someone who sat down and said, we shouldn't let a good crisis go to waste. Someday something will happen. And we should have legislation in a drawer for the moment in which the country is reeling Ah. and mourning and shocked. This is Just like you write an obituary for someone in their 90s before they die. So imagine being a public servant and contemplating a moment of national terror that unmoors us from our bearings. And to think that the thing that you should do to prepare for that moment is not to think about public health or aid or relief, but to write a bill to ram through extraordinary surveillance powers and to take away people's civil rights. You're thinking that a lot of that may have already been drafted. I think so. And I mean, I think it's plausible. A, it's a theory, and, and yeah. that is a conspiracy. So And, and I go. think that that is a much more plausible and also in its own way more damning thing yeah more of a stain on someone's character yeah and and it's more consistent with human nature and the kinds of things that people actually do whereas oftentimes i think the conspiracy theory community will jump to things that are just outside the realm of human psychology human behavior where they'll attribute massive intelligence and coordination and secrecy secrecy. to to these entities that make you think oh you've never been a project manager before happy right, right. Like, this is not how yeah, you incredible operational security for institutions that leak like sieves like it's really amazing <laughs> yeah no one's that competent no one right. really has that much of a thumb on everything that's happening and in particular the entities who they accuse of being that competent are a lot less competent and you know this is a lovely segue back into how to destroy surveillance capitalism yeah there is a um a critical term called crita hype which is when it's basically when someone claims to be an evil genius and you damn them for being an evil genius. And in the process, you admit that they're a genius. Uh, right. Right. That was always the joke with 9-11. Well, Bush couldn't have planned it because it worked. Exactly. Yeah. Cheney couldn't have planned it because the it, hijackers it, it, were it, from Saudi Arabia, mostly. Right. You know, right. Not yeah. And, Iraq. And, and Cheney couldn't have planned it because he didn't screw it up by looting it while it was <laughs> like halfway through. He like cheaped out and like took all the money out and stuck it in, you know, stuck it in a Swiss bank sure. account. That's how you know it wasn't Cheney. But yeah, no, I I think that like there's a critique of Facebook and Google and more broadly the surveillance capitalism critique that basically says these big tech companies, they go around and they tell us that with big data and analytics and machine learning, they can change people's minds. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do if you want them to buy your thing is you just go to them and they will do some combination of like A-B splitting and deep learning and surveillance data and they will take away what Shoshana Zuboff, who popularized the term surveillance capitalism, calls your right to the present tense. Hmm. That you will no longer, or right to the future tense, you will no longer be able to have a future because your future will be given to you by these companies. And it is true that's what they tell people, right? Right. That is their pitch. That's hype. That is their hype, right? And I think the reality that is becoming clearer and clearer as we get things like subpoenas in antitrust lawsuits is that the reason they do so well 
in the ad business is not because their ads are really effective. It's because they've secured an illegal monopoly and colluded to maintain it. Mm, there we have a real conspiracy again. Yeah, that, yeah. That's well, the definition of a conspiracy. The Texas AG literally just published document describing a conspiracy. It was documents from Google and Facebook describing Mark Zuckerberg and Sudar Pinchai meeting to do header bidding, which is a way to... So ads are sold in these real-time auctions. Okay. Like you go to a web page and it grabs your cookie and it goes like, what do we know about this guy? And then they take those personality traits and they put them out to a real-time auction and they see who will pay the most to show you an ad. Okay. And you can run the auction simultaneously on multiple exchanges and multiple auction houses. Google and Facebook would like to run them in Google and Facebook's auction houses. And Google and Facebook hmm. represent, they have what's called a demand-side platform and a supply-side platform. So that's the seller and the buyer. Okay. And they do both. So it's like having a divorce lawyer who represents both you and your ex. Interesting. Right? Okay. And they, they're not on either of your sides, right? So they have okay. lots of opportunities to pull money out of it. And there was a way to to get a, another exchange in there that might have slowed down your page, but a lot of people, publishers, were willing to do that. But the other exchanges might have given you more because they wouldn't be ripping you off the way Facebook and Google were. Okay. And they colluded to squeeze those guys out and then to give each other a set share of the market. And how was the Texas AG involved in this? So the Texas AG is the lead. The Texas AG is a terrible person, by the way. But okay. no one no one questions the authenticity of this document. It's a primary document from the firms. He is the lead on, a like, a, I think it's 20-something states in Puerto Rico are suing, uh, have an antitrust case against Facebook and Google. Oh, wow. Or against Facebook. But it involves this collusion with Google. So that's how these documents came to light. There was just some other unwritten documents that were just recently unredacted. And, you know, like, the more we look at it, the more they're just they're just cheating. Right. They collude to rig prices. They collude to rig metrics. So yeah. you may remember the pivot to video, Facebook's pivot to video. They told mm, all no. the news entities that video was performing really, really well and fetching very high ad revenues, CPMs, the money you get for every thousand people who see it. Okay. And all the newsrooms in the world became video newsrooms. Mm. And it was because Facebook internally liked the logic for this. It was a lie. Let me say that. It was a lie. That wasn't happening. Okay. People didn't want to watch a lot of videos on Facebook, but Facebook wanted to compete with YouTube. And they uh. were like, this is how we will push a piece of string. This is how we will create demand. Is this when they stopped letting YouTube videos autoplay inside of Facebook? I don't know, but that sounds like a plausible okay. thing. So they got all these news entities to make videos. And then they lied about how many video views they had. They just lied, right? And now this okay. is like public and there's, you know, big settlement and whatever. But they just they just made it up. They just said like videos are really popular and they charged advertisers for them. And then when the numbers actually fell to the real number, when they stopped puffing it up yeah. uh, because the advertisers didn't like it because they weren't seeing performance from their ads, then the publishers got messed up. And so there's this whole story that like hmm. Google and Facebook are stealing content from the news world. I think is ridiculous, right? The idea that like headlines and short snippets is a copyright violation. To me, that's very clearly fair use. Okay. Like the news is the thing we talk about. Newspapers include each other's headlines and snippets all the time. They will say like, the New York Times will say, under a story headline, da 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 da, the Washington Post wrote, oh. blah, 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 blah. Interesting. Right? Like that's just, it's just part of like normal stuff. And this idea that um, news entities are having their content stolen is not only wrong, but weird 
when you realize that what's actually happening is they're having their money stolen. Ah. Right? And, you know, like there's all these moves to like create a pool of revenue that Facebook and Google will pay in exchange for a license to this content or whatever. Right. And it's just weird because what's actually happening is they're just stealing from publishers and they're also stealing from advertisers. So famously, there are a bunch of brands that have like killed ad spends of up to $100 million a year and seen no drop in sales. Oh, really? Because the ads were just going nowhere. eBay used to advertise against all the keywords of all their categories in Google. So they would buy, like if they had Disneyana Vintage Haunted Mansion mm-hmm. category I spent a lot sure, of time in, yeah. right? They would buy that AdWord. And so then that that would put eBay at the top of the page when you search for those terms. And then in the organic search results, it would fall wherever it fell. And they just eliminated that and saw no drop in sales, right? So, you know, um, hmm. Wanamaker, who is the founder of Wanamaker's department stores, very famously said, half my advertising money is wasted. I just don't know which half. <laughs> which, like, to me, it's a testament to how good ad, ad men are. That you think it's only half. He thought it was only half. <laughs> right. Like, 99% of people, <laughs> 99% of your advertising is wasted. Clearly. So... This story that Facebook and Google tell, we have a mind control, Ray, is a very implausible story. On the one hand, because they lie a lot. But on the other hand, everyone who ever claimed to have a mind control rate was just talking out of their ass. Yeah. Right? So, MK Ultra and L. Ron <laughs> Hubbard and yeah. Rasputin and Mesmer and pickup artists. And there's a show you guys should do. <laughs> yeah. We've talked about that. Yeah. Uh, but, but like all of those people are clearly either high on their own supply or straight up grifters. Right. But they're speaking to something that people want and will pay for if it it exists. Yeah. Everyone would like it if they could solve the problem of other people not doing what they want them to do. And I think that's a common line too. The things that we investigate are things that are offered because they're quick solutions to things that are difficult or impossible to do. Yeah, for sure. You know, here's three easy steps to melt belly fat or or what have you. (laughs) This blue pill melts belly fat. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, you get people's money and you never have to deliver and yeah, you know sure. you move to the next town and you sell sure. them on the band like Harold Hill yeah, <laughs> from yeah. um, the music band. That's right. I just want to close that out and say that um, that these extraordinary claims are made and accepted at face value by critics of big tech. Mm-hmm. And this I think is a huge error that extraordinary- They're, they're cl- adopting the marketing hype. That's right. And using that in their critique. And, and so when you say the problem with big tech is that they've taken away our free will- that Mark Zuckerberg invented a mind control ray to sell your nephew a fidget spinner. Robert Mercer stole it and made your uncle a QAnon. That what you're doing is you're actually helping big tech because there are a lot more people who want to buy mind control as a service than want to mm. ban it, mm-hmm. right? So if we can puncture that belief that that even exists, then we can talk again about real factors. And we can really hurt them too, right? And like they, they are bad. Yeah. yeah. So it seems like that's a consistent theme is like, let's scrape away these layers of bad explanations. So right. we, we can talk about the real world factors that are involved sure. here. And I think conspiracy theories often distract us from that conversation. I think that's entirely right. Maybe uh, you can unpack real quickly just... The the idea of surveillance capitalism. I think sure. most people are familiar with those terms, but yeah. together, what does that mean? There's so some the, sort of the economy term, around people's information. Right. So the term was coined by some lefty economists at, I believe, University of British Columbia did a journal issue with that title. And then it lay dormant for some years. And then a business professor at Harvard named Shoshana Zuboff wrote a, an economics review paper, a law review paper with that title as well. Mm-hmm. And her argument was that markets do work Markets are an efficient way to do allocation because they aggregate all the choices made by all the participants in a market to figure out 
who the things are worth the most to and give them to them. Mm -hmm. And the the kind of the moral basis for capitalism mm. over the last 40 years in the neoliberal era has been, yes, capitalism produces inequality, but it also produces efficient allocations. It figures out how to get all the stuff that people need to them in the order that they need or desire it. Mm -hmm. And that markets are kind of information processing machine for identifying needs and filling them. This is Hayek and von Mises and then later Friedman and then the Reagan-Thatcher revolution. This is their whole basis for it. They say like inequality is the price that you pay. And it has its origins in something, this is getting a little in the weeds, but it has its origin in something from the 20s in Austria called the socialist calculation debate, okay. which was an argument about whether you could ever build a computer big enough to figure out who gets what. Hmm. And the argument was, no, you couldn't. That computer is called the market. Uh. And the inefficiency, like the exhaust product of the computer is not like heat that you need a big AC for. It's inequality. And oh, that wow. if you just get out of the way, you'll that get some inequality. Callous. <laughs> and it's very, but like, but it's like the inequality is like the price that you pay for the rising tide that lifts all boats. That's what sure. we mean when we say the rising tide lifts all boats, mm -hmm. right? Maybe, maybe Jeff Bezos gets very rich, but we all get one day delivery. And that's true if you don't count the people who work in the warehouses mm -hmm. and the merchants who sell on his platform who are being copycatted by them and the people who work in the factories and the climate consequences of all the things that he does. Okay, but sure. it is true that making Jeff Bezos very rich gave us all one day delivery. But we can point to many things in our lives. You know, we're surrounded by cool technology that capitalism has brought us. Sure, 100%. Although I would argue that <laughs> states have a large role in producing that. You know, there's a book called The Entrepreneurial State by uh, Maria Ma Mazzucata. It's a really good book about the basic research that goes into things like an iPhone, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. including like software-defined radios and lots of other stuff that that a lot of a lot of these uh, things are not market goods. They're public goods back yes. to fiber, right? Oh, right. And then markets- Results of DARPA or yeah. some other government, the space program or, or what have or you. Or like putting fiber through to the, yeah. to the curb of every home, right? Or, yeah, having roads that we can all Having drive roads electrification all of those projects that are require state intervention but then the private sector provides services over them so they're they're kind of a public private partnership so that's the basis for it and zuboff says look they've got the mind control right they figured out how to harvest your behavioral surplus so this is the part where you differ from yeah her. they're harvesting your behavioral surplus which is the surplus produced when they monitor your behavior uh, the surplus value. So she's kind of talking like a Marxist because surplus value is a Marxist thing, hmm. but she's not a Marxist, which you will see in a minute. Okay. Uh, see, you, they harvest this behavioral surplus, they refine it, and they use it to shape future behaviors. And so rather than the market in which our decisions are inputs to a process whose emergent property is an efficient allocation, okay. we don't make decisions anymore. The decisions are given to us ah. through behavioral manipulation. Okay. Right. And that's that's the full surveillance capitalism hypothesis. And there's some bells and whistles around the edge, but that's like her core hypothesis. And I think that if you want to identify a way in which the large firms of today deprive us of choice, you don't need to reach to what is to me an extremely complex explanation mm. involving functional mind control rays that are badly hypothesized and only thinly sketched out, you can say that one of the most important ways in which people are deprived of choice is to live in a monopoly, mm. right? Like once all your friends are on Facebook- Where they're literally deprived of choice. Right, and once, the, once Facebook has the legal right to stop you from making a thing that plugs into Facebook that lets you talk to Facebook without being on Facebook, yeah. they have through cybersecurity law and copyright and patent and a bunch of other right. things, then 
if you want to talk to your friends, you have to join Facebook, right? right? That, yeah. They, they don't need to like mind control you to join Facebook. It's all well and good to delete your account until you're not invited to the reunion. Right. Or you your don't talk to your family anymore. Or whatever. Yeah. You know, Amazon doesn't need to use mind control to get you to buy things on Amazon. They just need to use predatory pricing, which is to say use shareholder capital to subsidize below cost sales mm -hmm. that people who don't have access to deep capital reserves can't compete with to drive firms out of the market such that the only place to buy stuff is Amazon. You gave a really interesting example of the transition from MySpace to Facebook, yeah. where Facebook early on could write a plug-in essentially that said, hey, well, just give us your MySpace account password and we'll give you updates on what's going on in MySpace. We'll, we'll go and scrape your inbox. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you're not missing anything there. And we provide this glide path into Facebook. Right. Whereas now they've actively made that impossible for anybody yeah, else to do that for Facebook. They successfully sued Power Ventures for doing that to Facebook. It's always sad to see that where the the company that starts out as the, you know, the do no evil to use a different uh, right. company. Don't be evil. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, eventually ends up becoming the oppressor. <laughs> well, I call it every pirate wants to be an admiral. Uh. Right. So like here we are in Hollywood and the reason, well, near Hollywood and the reason we're in Hollywood and not in New Jersey where Edison invented the movie projector and camera and film mm. is that people wanted to make movies and the Edison Trust wouldn't let them. And the Edison Trust had the patents right. on all of the stuff. And they just wouldn't let people make movies unless they fit into the categories Edison liked and they paid royalties to Edison. And so a bunch of filmmakers moved effectively to the Mexican border, which Other is side where of we the are country. now, yeah. really far from New Jersey and started a bunch of studios, <laughs> right? Yeah. These are the same studios that cheered on lawsuits against 19,000 college kids for downloading music. Right. right? I, I was just thinking of the analogy to the RIAA yeah. and, and what they did with, you know, Napster and, yeah. uh, you know. Well, and the RIAA only exists because... This is the they, recording industry we're talking about. Yeah, the, they took sheet music and recorded it, which is a thing that composers really hated. John Philip Sousa said, if these infernal talking machines are allowed to continue, we will lose our voice boxes as we lost our tails when we came down out of the trees. Oh, wow. In 1909, <laughs> congressional testimony, right? That's fun. So, you know, like a lot of points for being an early advocate of the still controversial theory of evolution, right? <laughs> yeah. But, but, um, <laughs> but still, like they recorded without permission, mm -hmm. recorded music and created a recorded music industry. And then like someone came along and poured their old wine into a new bottle. They right. digitized it and they were like, oh, when we did it, that was progress. And when you're doing it, that's that. Right now, In fact, exactly. they did it long before yeah. that. They did it when broadcasters put records on the radio. Mm. And the reason we have two rights societies for, for radio, BMI and ASCAP, is ASCAP represented all the respectable artists, which is to say white artists who tailor to middle-class and bourgeois audiences, and they boycotted radio broadcast. And so none of their music was on the radio. BMI formed to represent what was called race music and hillbilly music, country music and, and black music. And that was the only thing on the radio for quite some time. Huh. And then ASCAP was like, why are these illegitimate pretenders whose music is no good? The only <laughs> people whose music the world listens to, you must put our music on the it's, radio. It's always so fascinating to learn these behind the scenes stories of whose interests ended up with culture being what it is. Yeah, you know? and it's, it, it's also contingent, right? This is where I want to recommend your other book, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, or one of your many other books yes. uh, that I really enjoyed and taught me a lot about rights management. Well, we've got a, I've got a book coming out with Rebecca. Giblin called Choke Point Capitalism in September. That's a book about 
the inadequacy of copyright for securing a living for creators in an era of these monopolistic markets. Mm. We analogize it to like giving your bullied kid more lunch money. If they have to go through the school gates, it doesn't matter how much lunch money they have because the bully just needs to stand at the school gates and take however much money you give them. Mm. You need to address the structural problem of there being a <laughs> choke point, right? Right. That and and those choke points are labels and studios and but also tech companies. Is there and, a way that we can get the bully away from the gate? That's right. Yeah. And so we we talk about a whole bunch of remedies, including things like contractual changes, some technological changes, labor changes. Th there's things like um, reversion rights, which after 35 years, you can take back your rights, even if you assign them. Yeah. Uh, and this is actually going on with Disney right now, because all the Marvel creators are asserting termination rights, and they want to take back the, all the Kirby characters, or not the Kirby characters, because they settle, but the Lee characters, the, the Ditko set characters, hmm. and so on, from Marvel, which really? would be pretty wild. Oh, wow. Um, and, huh. uh, you know, the, the heirs of the guy who made uh, the Game of Life for Hasbro are trying to terminate his rights. Uh, George Clinton okay. terminated all of his rights. The Babysitter's Club terminated. Huh. And so those authors... They have very weak bargaining power at the start of their careers, and they sign deals that are very bad for them. Right. And then when they have negotiating leverage later in their careers, they can terminate and get a better deal. So yeah. George Clinton today can get a much better deal for his rights than he could 35 years ago. And the Babysitter's Club books can just be listed as Kindle books. They don't have to be sold through a publisher. And then the, she can get 70% of the money and not 30%. So like if you want to if you want to like give artists some a way to spend a lot of money in court being righteously indignant, give them more copyright. If you want to give artists groceries and money for their kids' braces, do this other stuff. Termination and labor okay. rights and so on. Fascinating. Hey, Ross. Hey, Corey. Sorry to interrupt. It's me, Carrie, coming from the future because I just, I really wanted to tell you what's happening in the future, what is up over here. And school has like really changed here in the future. And in particular, a lot of students are using a new service called Baiju's Future School. And it's the service where students receive personalized attention, a world-class learning experience. It's totally online and it supplements their in-person school education. And uh, as you both know, I'm not a parent, but if I were a parent, which I can imagine, I think that I would be, I think I'd be a very involved parent. I think I would perhaps over-involve myself in that person's learning and be like really overbearing. So this really speaks to me. No, 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 hold on, hold on. I think this, I think this would also work for non-overbearing parents. But, you know, like kids go to school for a few hours a day and for some of them, they never really like lock into the material and they need this, uh, you know, additional outside support. And this is a way to actually get like one-on-one -on -one schooling that, that really like supplements that normal school experience. At Baiju's Future School, students receive personalized attention with live access to a teacher in a one-on-one -on -one or one-to-four setting. And they currently offer coding and music courses for grades one through 12 and math courses for grades one through eight. So keep an eye out for even more subjects launching before you know it. We've had a few friends uh, try this service and we, we got some, some very helpful feedback and also some really lovely compliments about the service itself. It sounds like kids really truly get one on one attention here and it's especially useful for any course material that either doesn't speak to them at school or that they'd really like to know more about but there's only sort of passing attention in their normal day. 
So join the millions of parents accelerating their kids learning today. And right now, Baiju's Future School is offering our listeners their first class free. So just go to baiju's.com, that's B-Y-J-U-S dot com slash podcast to sign up for your first class absolutely free. That's baiju's, B-Y-J-U-S dot com slash podcast. And while I have your attention, and I know that I do, I wanted to tell you about HelloFresh. You guys aware of HelloFresh? You're both nodding. Okay. Oh, Corey. Oh, you've tried it. Wow. And Ross, you also? Oh, amazing. I have also tried HelloFresh. I don't know. Oh, you're both taking sips of water. I get it. I have also tried HelloFresh. I enjoy it a lot. I find that it makes cooking a lot easier. And it's the perfect in-between spot for having things that are like a little prepared for me, but not over-prepared for me. I don't feel like some dummy who can't do anything, but I also get a little bit of a challenge out of it. And yet they've gone and done the shopping for me. They've decided what I'm eating tonight. So, you know, it just takes some of the some of the headache out of cooking. And with HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You skip trips to the grocery store. You count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And that's why it's America's number one meal kit. Agree? Agree? Oh, you're both nodding. Oh, you're both drinking water again. Jesus. Um, well, it's good to hydrate. So HelloFresh offers convenient, contact-free delivery for easy home cooking with the family. And they also have fresh, high-quality, pre-portioned ingredients so you can make meals that are delicious and nutritious. And there's something for everyone. That includes weekly, low-calorie, vegetarian, and family-friendly recipes. And they save you a lot of time, and they're delicious. You know, Ross has a family of three. Right, Ross? Yes, he's nodding. And this is, like, perfectly portioned for them. And then at my home, we're two of us, and we can get our own for, for two people. And uh, so it's very adjustable. And, yeah, no matter what kind of food you enjoy, there's going to be something for you. So go to HelloFresh.com slash ONO16 and use code ONO16, that's one six, for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash Ono16 and code Ono16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Ross, Corey, you were saying? Well, to tie again to the kind of conspiracy crowd, uh, we're talking about how we kind of impute these supernatural abilities almost to these entities that are pulling the strings behind the scenes. And somehow we never have any proof of their existence or their actions, except that the lack of the proof becomes the proof itself. You know? Yeah. I I guess the the point I want to introduce here is that what we ascribe to this kind of string pulling can so easily be described in terms of real human motivations, which are laziness, greed, sure. entropy. Like, yeah. you know, we we just want to have a sure thing and a steady paycheck and, and then sometimes more, you know. And sometimes even just diseconomies of scale, right? So uh, yeah, like, unpack that a bit. So when firms get bigger, it's harder for them to make exceptions. And so they make policies that work for like the first three sigmas of, of cases. Okay. And then they just accept as the price of doing business. Or even the 90% yeah. situation. I mean, you work at a very large firm, right? Which yeah. my wife also works for, and which I used to work for. I, I used to be a green badge imagineer. Yeah, we're right? talking about Disney here. Yeah. And so no it, one- Talk about t- copyright law. Yeah, yeah, Mickey, Mickey I himself. Wanna, uh, I don't want to get into that. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think that Me neither. <laughs> anyone at Disney, all the way up to Bob Chapek, who would say that Disney is a company- that is good at being flexible at the margins in respect of individual 
consumers, individual licensors, individual artists who work at it, that, that I think all of them would say that there is a somewhat cumbersome process that arises from having to do things like synchronize the tent poles, you know, the, the different properties that mm -hmm. are that, to organize somewhat overlapping territories between animation and studios. And, you know, they just restructured all of those and gave them all new names, uh -huh. right? Even the, you know, much vaunted cast member training where you're supposed to first take care of safety and then courtesy and then show and then profit. It's it sounds like a flowchart that you go through for actual decisions, but if you talk to actual cast members who work as actual cast members, they will tell you that it's not that simple. That like mm. if you say, oh, I just gave away some merchandise because that kid was sad, mm. your boss yeah. is going to be angry at you, right? Right. And so the, the, this ability to Unless be, it got captured on social media, in which case it generated case it might. goodwill. And small, and this goes back to kind of the Facebook story and the Google story and so on. Small groups don't always work better but they have a tractable collective action problem of figuring out how to resolve allocation, conflicts, all of those Life things. Life is that, messy. Yeah, but like families can figure it out. It's not always easy, but families can figure it out. Mm -hmm. There is a theory that says that the problem with Facebook is that we have the wrong Mark Zuckerberg. All right. right. All we need to do is get someone who is well-suited to being the unelected permanent social media czar of 3 billion people's lives, and Facebook will be better. Well, how feeble is that when we're just relying on essentially the personality right. of one person sure. that determines our society? Yeah, and so I think that the problem with Facebook is that there is no one who should have that job and that job shouldn't exist, and that the solution to the very thorny problem, like I have a lot of sympathy for the people at Facebook who are in charge of this, of figuring out how to make a single set of policies that wrap around 150 countries and a thousand languages yeah. and all the different com communities and contexts. Yeah. I think the solution is to not do that, right? I think the solution is to like devolve moderation policies to communities and, and to devolve platforms to communities, it, right? Yeah, I think this is a really important to bring up because, you know, we've been having a bit of a bitch session here about you know, mm -hmm. like really bad actions by bad actors, but you're not calling for technology to be abolished sure. for all of us to like completely unplug and go live in the mountains or something like that. We should have social media. We should <laughs> have robust internet connections, but there are healthy ways to do this and it involves having checks and balances on that laziness, on that greed, on all of those things that are just natural and human. I will brief for checks and balances, but I also want to brief for self-determination. Okay. That one of the big problems, so there's um there's a school that is pro-antitrust, which is weird to say, pro-anti, but pro-antitrust <laughs> because they value competition as a good in and of itself, right? And, and I think that there's a problem with that. And you can see it in the Competition and Markets Authority report in the UK on the ad tech market, where they identified one of the durable advantages to Google and Facebook, who have a serious duopoly over digital ads. They identified as a, as a significant advantage something called attribution, which is the fact that they, on the one hand, have got instruments stretched over so much of the web. You know, every time you download a font from Google or a Facebook like button mm, or whatever, they mm -hmm. learn what page you're on and what you're doing. Plus, they provide the back end and identity services to so many sites and services. Plus, they buy data from so many services, including credit card data and so on. Plus, they have location tracking built into their apps and any apps built with their tools. Mm -hmm. They just know a lot about you. And what that lets them do is show you an ad and then follow you around. And if you buy the thing that was in the ad, either online or in the real world, if you go into a store and buy the thing, they often can tell. And then they can tell the advertiser. Yeah, and all they need is one little piece of information that links it to you, your phone number, That's or right. last four digits of your credit card and, number, or whatever. And they, just, they can just, they can just uh, merge all those records, right? And yeah. it doesn't have to be perfect. Advertisers still will pay a large premium for this. And the Competition and Markets Authority says it's going to be very hard 
to make a more pluralistic version of the ad tech market for so long as this advantage accrues to just two firms. Therefore, perhaps we should assign permanent lifelong advertising IDs to everyone in the UK. Whoa. Right? And I'm like, wait, 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 whoa, wait, whoa, wait, whoa, wait, whoa. wait, wait, wait. So we need to distinguish here between competition for its own sake, right? And competition as a means to an end. And if the end is self-determination, then we don't want competition in who can invade your human rights most efficiently. That's interesting. Was there any provision of that that would allow you to have some control over it was what, just, your profile? It was, it was just like, maybe we should do it. Okay. They didn't go, okay. This, okay. Is, this is a research report into a, a market structure yeah. that was to feed into further regulatory and legislative action. But the fact that that's where they landed, right? So there's another place you could have landed, which is like the power of these firms to either skirt or prevent the passage of privacy laws has allowed them to grotesquely invade our privacy in ways that admittedly advertisers value, but which they should never have been allowed to do. And one of our main goals in restoring competition to this market should be to weaken these firms so that we can prohibit this conduct. Okay. Right? Okay. That is like, that's the other version of it. And yeah. that's the self-determination version, right? And, and this is the thing where I agree with Zuboff that surveillance is bad. I am an anti-surveillance activist. I yeah. have been for a really long time. Yeah. I just don't think that the thing that's bad about surveillance is mind control. I think the thing that's bad about surveillance is on a, like a very high level, it's creepy. Uh, so when you say mind control, essentially like- Behavior modification. Right. By flashing ads at us on our screens, you know, to the right of the articles that we're reading that somehow our neurochemistry is being rewritten so that we will like automatons yeah. just buy the, the fridge that they put in front of us. Like, I think that, you know, there's a, a good way maybe to think about this is the online radicalization hypothesis. You know, you watch a video, there's some suggested videos, you watch another video, you start with- I wonder about the genetics of people from different regions of the world mm -hmm. and you become a eugenicist in All seven right. clicks, right? right? We get a lot of flat earthers that way. I'm sure you do. And so what I, I would say, because I know that that's true, right? I do know that you can get there. And there's a very benign version of this, which is like, carpentry is interesting. I'll go watch a video about how they do carpentry. Oh, joinery is a very interesting subversion. Mm -hmm. Ah, Japanese joinery is really cool. Wow, that one kind of Japanese mortise joint. Oh my God, there's like hundreds of videos about people who make these weird, nailless Japanese locking joints. I could watch this for days, right? Like that's the totally benign radicalization version. You start with a very yeah. broad category, you end up in an esoteric category. My question is, when the esoteric category is one that requires that you disbelieve in like institutional authority and credibility, where you believe in conspiratorial explanations for mm -hmm. things, where you think that small numbers of people are running the world and doing bad things to harm other people and so on, wouldn't it be more productive to investigate the material circumstances of people's lives that make those conspiratorial explanations plausible. Right. Again, scraping off the bad explanation, right. saying, well, let's actually look so under you, the hood. What's here? I mean, here? you can think of the surveillance capitalism hypothesis and the online radicalization hypothesis as a meta-conspiracy, a conspiracy about conspiratorialism. Mm -hmm. Conspiratorialism springs from a conspiracy to make people into conspiratorialists. Well, one thing I keep thinking about as we're talking about this, you know, quote unquote, mind ray that yeah. Facebook and Google are exercising here is of early ideas and misinformation about subliminal liminal messaging yeah, totally that a lot of people believed oh if they flash that one frame in yeah, the theater the ice cube. or or even like a uh, back masking on audio oh yeah. if they play this backwards yeah. audio it, which we've encountered recently somebody uh, yeah. promoting that uh, you know that somehow we can have a message and a directive put 
in our heads, or the Manchurian Candidate. That's right. another version of right. this that, that you have sort of hypnotism or LSD or whatever it is that's controlling people. I, I, I think it's a really interesting point you're making that we kind of have this belief that uh, social media companies have even more control than they do right. of, of our mental and, faculties. And, you know, to be fair, I think they think they do. Okay. Right. And so, like, for example, that one of the things that gets talked about a lot in this context is Facebook did a research study where they, without consent, exposed 60 million people to a stimulus that they predicted would cause them to vote mm. during an election. And then they monitored whether or not they added an I have voted. Oh, okay. They had an experimental arm and they found that about 300,000 people voted who they predicted wouldn't have. Because of the stimulus. And a lot of people are like, oh. Facebook can get 300,000 people to vote in an election. Holy shit. Except that mm. the effect size was 0.39%. Oh. Right? Okay. So there aren't elections so that in are gross won numbers, by 0.39%. Interesting. But I'll tell you what. But the but the raw numbers sound pretty darn they impressive. Do. And I will say to people who worry that Facebook is trying to steal elections by figuring out how to modify our behavior around voting, yeah. I will say that- this study shows that they're not very good at it. However, it also shows that Facebook, being the kind of company that non-consensually performs psychological experiments on 60 million people at a time, uh, yeah. should <laughs> run a lemonade stand. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, that, that part of that story should have told you right. something. Um, like, I don't think pickup artists can get women to sleep with them right. by saying secret words to them. But if they try... But I do think that they're bad people for trying. Yes. Right? Right. That, that, I think right. that that's the, way to, that's the way to square the circle here. You know, you, it is not, the problem isn't that they can do what they claim. The problem is that they're trying to do what they claim. Right, right, right. And that's enough, even if they're ineffective. Uh, fascinating. And and then the perception of their efficacy has an effect sure. as well. Now, you've got me curious to get your take on the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Because sure. as I was reading Mindfuck, uh, they were talking about... You know, how they presented to Steve Bannon, you know, like, hey, look, you know, we've pulled all this data. We have all these little spreadsheets in the background that are linking various sources of data to hone in on certain people. Mm -hmm. And, oh, look, let's go find one person who practices yoga but is also religious. And, you know, here's her phone number. Let's call her. And sure enough, like it, it worked. That sounds like a mind ray to me. So what, what do we is, do with this story? So, like yes. That? So I think that when you actually look at what Cambridge Analytica claimed it was doing – Right, the methods that they claim they were employing, big five personality type analysis, sentiment analysis, and so on, these are all fields whose core studies, right, their most cited work is right in the middle of the replication crisis. Mm. These are non-replicating or poorly replicated experiments. Okay, so we can pull a positive result. Actually, right now I feel the spirit of Carrie uh, reminding me to tell everybody Cambridge Analytica was a company that sold a bunch of Facebook-derived data that was sure. just siphoned off of Facebook to political campaigns or whoever would pay for it yeah. uh, to influence elections, to influence politics in other countries. They used a deceptive tactic to exploit Facebook's interface to allow them to extract not just the data of people who took a quiz, but of all of their friends. Right. And so here's what I do think. I think that targeting is important, right? If you say you have a message about why companies that took part in installing asbestos or having asbestos removed without adequate PPE should be penalized for it. It is not an act of like Svengali-like prediction <laughs> to say finding people who have suffered because of asbestos or who are related to people who've suffered because of asbestos mm -hmm. is a good place to start. Yeah. If you're selling cheerleading uniforms, finding people who are on cheerleading squads to advertise them to 
is a good place to start. Yeah. A lot of the stuff that Cambridge Analytica claimed they could do is find unobvious correlates of those things because maybe not everyone who's a cheerleader signs up to say I'm a cheerleader, but they all use, they all like subscribe to a mailing list or they all get this certain magazine or they all buy their shoes from one company. And so if you can get their customer list, then you can advertise to all the cheerleaders, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So they claim that they could, um, they could winkle this stuff out. And maybe they could, right? Maybe, yeah. maybe they could. And like, I, I think that's entirely plausible. But targeting is not the same as mind control. Targeting is like, if I want to talk to people about why fluoride is bad, and I can get the membership list for the John Birch Society, <laughs> I'm in my zone, right? Like, yeah. I don't need to be, you don't need to think that I am convincing right. to think that, to understand how I got so much uptake from my mail out. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so I think that like, it is true. They found a bunch of people who were disaffected for various reasons. Sometimes I think it was racial animus. Sometimes I think it was about material conditions. You know, one of the things that I'm, that I really think about the 2016 election is that I don't think people got more racist. I think the salience of their racism went up. Okay. Right. Yeah. But like there are lots of people who are racist, who it's not the central fact of their life. So, you know, like you probably know people who are, well, I mean, you're, you know, vegans, you know, Carrie, who's a vegan, mm -hmm. who's, who's very firm in her belief in veganism and how it relates to how we treat animals. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of a central fact of her life to the extent that I have this parasocial relationship with her. And I understand this about her. There are other people who are vegans who are just vegans, right? It's just like one of the things about their life. Mm. They don't talk about it. They just like, that's just what they do. Right. Vegans probably a bad example because most vegans it's yeah a big are deal pretty for them. passionate about but it. But like there are people in who fact are I would say Carrie is one of the least, the, the less like okay. let's make this whole conversation about veganism. Okay. So that Disneyland. Right? Okay. I'm 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 <laughs> a Carrie kind of Disneyland person and Carrie is a kind of Carrie Disneyland person. There, there are lots of people who just go to Disneyland and then there are some people who are really into Disneyland. Yes. Right? And the salience of your relationship to Disney goes up and down depending on other factors. And I think that although there, I think the way to understand and square the disagreement about whether or not Trumpism was motivated by racial animus is to say that it was, but that what he did was not turn people racist, nor were those people, quote, racist all along, but rather they harbored some racist views, but they weren't important to them. Ah, and what Trump did ah, or what the moment did that Trump exploited up the importance. was made it more important, made it a more salient issue for their lives. I mean, that happens all the time. Climate is now a salient issue for a lot of people yeah. for whom it wasn't. So it's kind of like an operation of, to use a visual metaphor, driving up the contrast, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so maybe you had bands of gray, but now they're getting closer to black and white. I mean, we've all heard of one-issue voters, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I think very few people are one-issue voters, but people yeah. have an order of things that matter to I, them. I know a lot of people on the conservative side, including in my family, who will vote only on the abortion issue. So this is a really interesting thing, and I wrote about it in my Schismogenesis article that pro you, you're from an evangelical Protestant mm -hmm. background, right? Yeah. So Protestants were not abortion <laughs> right, campaigners right. until like in living memory. Like I grew up- That was the my, Catholic thing. Yeah. And it was- Alone. And, and of course the Protestant Catholic split is still alive with us, but it was very, very salient to a lot of Protestants in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Many of whom did not consider Catholics to be real Christians right? or real Americans. I was raised with that sentiment. Yeah. And you know, so my mom was an abortion rights campaigner. I grew up, you know, like the first photo of me in the newspaper is I'm being held aloft by this Canadian abortion doctor, Henry Morgenthaler. Oh, wow. Had a fundraiser for him. Uh, he, kept, he kept getting thrown in jail and performing abortions and okay. getting thrown in jail. Um, so I grew up on the front lines of this stuff. I used to do clinic defense as a kid. And I saw 
that it was all Catholic kids. It was all Catholics and Catholic kids. We have a publicly funded Catholic school system in Ontario for complicated reasons relating to the history of French and English Canada. Okay. But um, okay. they would bus kids to abortion clinics to picket them from publicly funded Catholic schools. And Every sperm is sacred. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> that's right. what I'm picturing. And, and then I remember suddenly there were evangelicals in the midst. And I was like, who are these guys? Oh. Right? And- it is really weird. Who are these interlopers? And and the thing about it is that abortion, because there was so much suspicion of Catholicism among mainline evangelical Christians, mm-hmm. caring about abortion made you ideologically suspect, right? It mm. made you a crypto papist, mm-hmm. right? And so there are people alive today who are one issue abortion voters who in living memory, if you had told them that you cared about abortion would say, you're probably not a real Christian. But they've forgotten that transition. Somehow, right? Like my friends with the James Comey vote of candles Mm -hmm. who were marching (laughs) in the streets against George W. Bush, those people have somehow become people who literally, like they believe, life begins at conception, ends at birth, and can only be renewed by incorporating as a Delaware LLC. Yeah. (laughs) When talking about conspiracy theories, one one of the things I hear most often from people on maybe our side, if we want to talk about sides, you know, who will just kind of incredulously say, well, how can you hold these contradictory positions in your mind? That's what we do as humans. We're really good at that. Sure. Holding contradictory positions. You know, we contain multitudes. And to bring it all back to conspiratorialism, the thing that Cambridge Analytica can do is locate people who have some trauma in their lives, right? People who live in areas that were economically left behind, Mm -hmm. people who work in industries that are in decline, people who live in neighborhoods that are in decline, people who who have worries, who have concerns, who, you know, live in areas of high drug addiction and so on. And it can target them with conspiratorial accounts of their misery. And those accounts are very plausible, right? storytelling is always very important. Totally. Yeah. Right. And so I think that, you know, this is the Trump tells a good, simple tale, right? Yeah. Like that's his thing. It's it's very, you know, my curse and challenge as an activist is trying to simplify complex stories. Hmm. And the thing that I am saddled with that Trump is not saddled with is I try not to be so simplistic. <laughs> try to tell the truth. Yeah. Or yeah. I try not to leave a, a really important details. Right? Yeah. I try to be, I try not to mislead people by eliding important details. Yeah. And Trump doesn't care. And right? th- that's a burden that takes more time and yeah. conscious effort. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so. So, you know, I think that he was successful. So I think that's the Cambridge Analytica story, right? As I was reading How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism, I kept thinking all of these processes are just like catalysts. They're increasing the speed and rapidity of interactions, of of things that might happen naturally, but they they never would just out of lack of connection or lack of time. And technology is going faster than that we can kind of keep up with. You can think of it as also like maybe like we think about COVID variants as being more opportunity for virulent mutation, right? Like mm-hmm. like lots of, a lot of stuff is happening. Another good analogy. And yeah. some of it's really cool, right? Like some of the stuff that emerges from it is really wild. And, you know, I love seeing, you know, as much as TikTok, I think, is very problematic because it's so surveillant and it, it spies on you more than any other app that you can put on your phone. Yeah. The things my kid does with TikTok are amazing. Like, yeah. She's now become a video editor. Right. She's a choreographer. She's doing all kinds of sight gags. She's doing stuff that is and that's incredible. So cool. The things that we're allowed to do in our lives are amazing. Yeah. It's truly fantastic. So yeah, it's easy to be upset with Facebook and Google and Apple and Microsoft and Amazon and all of these other companies, but there are enough real benefits that we let a lot of this slide. So, so there's a much discredited word for what you're talking about that I'm trying to reclaim, which is Luddism. 
Oh, okay. So Good old Ned Ludd. You, you probably think of Luddism as meaning someone who's technophobic. Yeah. But the actual Luddites were a movement of skilled weavers. Yeah. Their objection to the Industrial Revolution wasn't that machines were doing their job. It was that the economic arrangement whereby the machines did their job is that rather than them working fewer hours while the production was ramped up, everyone got more clothes and they got the same pay and they continued to be part of this industry Which would that all they be created fine. and all the machines were bought with the profits that were generated from their labor. Mm -hmm. They were just getting fired, right? And either replaced with people who were low skilled or just with a smaller number of their colleagues. Mm. And so they weren't concerned with what the machine was doing. They were concerned with who it was doing it for and who it was doing it to. Yeah. And yeah. like the problem with iOS for me is not that they built a phone that has a very curated app store where people do their very best to make sure that the apps are secure. It's that when their choices are wrong, you don't get to choose to override them and mm. use another app store. Mm -hmm. And so like when they removed all the working privacy tools from the app store in China, because the Chinese government wanted to spy on people in China, yeah. you couldn't just switch app stores and use a side load or just use a different app store to load privacy respecting apps. Yeah. And it is a Luddite posture to say the thing that I don't like is not the machine, but the social arrangements. For yeah. It. Yeah. How do, how do we thread that needle and express that we, we don't want to fully get rid of these services, we've come to rely upon them, enjoy them, appreciate them. But how do we effectively advocate for better behavior, more oversight? Right. Well, I've just sold a book. Yes. Who's another one <laughs> whose title is Seize the Means of Computation. Oh, okay. That is about this. It's about interoperability as a way of kickstarting that because I think that okay. uh, regulation, particularly antitrust regulation, is pretty slow. It took 68 years to break up Bell from the from the first antitrust action to 1982. It's a yeah. long, long haul. You, you made a great point in the book about how all of this legislation proceeded against IBM and its abuse of mainframe computing yeah and then by the time that we had a judgment on them well they settled they didn't even they didn't even get a judgment. technology had already moved along weren't important. yeah, yeah. And it was now individual computing years. they called it antitrusts vietnam and i remember i was really actively watching microsoft yeah. in the early 2000s seven years and of antitrust yeah exactly and it's just like nail biting waiting for something to happen are they going to get broken up into smaller companies and you know it just never came to fruition and you know it's not to say that there weren't benefits right like i think the reason that i IBM didn't make its own OS for the PC. Well, first of all, I think the reason they made PCs out of commodity components was because they were worried about vertical integration mm. claims from the DOJ. I think the reason they didn't make so their even, own OS... So even the inconvenience and uh, struggle of that oversight, that has an effect. It kind of broke their spirit, right? They didn't itself. make their own OS because they were worried that one thing the DOJ really hated was tying software to hardware. Yeah. So they hired these two kids, Bill Gates and Paul Allen, who had a company called Micro-Soft. The dash <laughs> went later uh -huh. uh, to make to make DOS for them. Um, and then, you know, again, like seven years of antitrust hell for Bill Gates did in fact produce a tangible outcome because when two kids at Stanford created a search engine called Google, mm -hmm. he didn't do to them what he did to Netscape. Right. And lots of people who are senior at Microsoft who, you know, have since quit have told lots of journalists the reason Google didn't get the Netscape treatment is because Bill Gates' spirit was broken. You so know? the tools of justice are slow, but still effective on some level. Sure. But for us as individuals, my takeaway from the book was that one thing we can do is encourage the breaking up of monopolies. We used to have really good protections sure. against monopolies, and now we just don't. And the world is in a much better place for that because of the current administration and because of what's happening elsewhere. We have really good trust-busting people in the DOJ, in the White House, and in the FTC. Lena Kahn at the the FTC is a force of nature. Mm. It's an incredible story. She was a third year Yale law student 
four years ago. Now she's the chair of the FTC. Oh, wow. She wrote a paper in her third year for the law journal called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. She's just that good. That refuted the entire antitrust orthodoxy of the Reagan years and the 40 years after. Yeah? Now she's running the FTC. Is it good reading? It's it's amazing. It Amazon's technical? Antitrust Paradox. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, amazing cool. reading. I'm going to check this out. absolutely read it. It's brilliant. But we're in a good place for that. But what I'm trying to get at with this interop story is that all of that stuff is really important. Breakups are really important, but they're slow. And they don't produce remedies straight away. And mm. my concern is that for a breakup to be effective or even a, a failed breakup to do something good, you need a lot of political will. And political will comes from delivering tangible benefits to people and their material circumstances. And so if you only get the benefits 20 years later or 10 years later, those people don't all get in a time machine and cheer you on. While you're, you're, you're having to do that same long-term planning that the telecom communications refuse to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So I think interoperability is a way to deliver immediate tangible benefits to people. To kind of force the companies to open up their platforms to allow yeah. other That's right. startups to use Facebook data or whatever. Yeah, there's, there's two forms of this, right? So one is mandatory interfaces. Uh, so the Access Act in the U.S., the Digital Markets Act mm -hmm. in the EU both contemplate some form of saying like, you have to allow third parties to connect to your service so I can quit Facebook but still talk to my Facebook friends. There will be something in the middle that is a, like a policy layer that stops Cambridge Analytica from doing that and mm -hmm. just stealing a bunch of data or a Chinese state-owned enterprise or whatever. But like Facebook isn't going to be the one who makes that judgment call because Facebook is conflicted, right? Facebook, right. Facebook does defend your the privacy. the interest of their shareholders. But they sometimes, yeah, sometimes they don't defend your privacy, they defend their shareholders. And sometimes yeah. when those two things are in conflict, they take the wrong side. Right, right. And, right. and so that's great. But I also think there's this other side, adversarial interoperability, or we sometimes call it competitive compatibility because it's hard to say adversarial interoperability, which is like what Apple did when they made the iWork suite. So mm. Microsoft was destroying Apple in the small office space. Well, in all office spaces, I was a CIO back then. I was running like blended networks of Macs and PCs. And if you sent a Word document from a Windows machine to a Mac and opened it with Word for the Mac, it was just cursed. Yeah. Like yep. you go corrupt. You couldn't send it back. Like it was just awful. I remember those and days. We started like first we like bought the designers PCs and they just like they had a Mac to do their design on and a PC to like get files from the rest of the office on. Yeah. And then we just started buying Quark and Adobe licenses for the PCs. Right. We just started ah. getting rid of the Macs. It was a real danger for Apple. So what Apple did was like not beg Bill Gates to make better Mac Office. They reverse engineered the Office file formats and made Pages, Numbers, mm. and Keynote, mm. which can read and write Office file formats. And so that's adversarial interoperability. Yeah. No one, no one mandated them to do it. But IBM could not use patent, cybersecurity, contract, copyright, or any other theory to stop them from doing this. Yeah. And in the years since... Now we found ways to do that. All of those things have yeah, shut down uh, that Including kind of... Apple has spent a lot of energy on figuring out ways to... See, we're talking about capitalism, but this is not free market capitalism no. when you can't create those solutions yeah. that use those same formats. And it's, it's not widely understood, but Keynes, when he talked about free markets, what he meant was not markets free of regulation, he meant markets free of rent. Mm. So he, he thought that markets in which parties who added no productive value to a process got to extract uh, revenues from it. Yeah. So they were neither an investor nor a producer nor nor um, a manager. So like they didn't build the factory, they didn't pay for the factory and they don't work in the factory, mm. but they own the land that the factory sits on. Yeah. When they can extract rent, the market's not free. Okay. So, the, you know, these are not free markets in that sense too, because what you have is firms able to decide the terms on which they can, anyone can do anything, right? They, they can wield a patent or a copyright in a way 
that prevents third parties from doing stuff. Right. Again, without getting too esoteric, there's this weird law from 1998 called Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act oh, yeah. that makes it a felony to bypass digital rights management. Okay. And so what that means is like if you've got an iPhone and the bootloader is locked with some digital rights management and you need to unlock it to install a third party app store, that becomes a crime because the software is a copyrighted work and the bootloader is a DRM tool. Mm -hmm. And so what that ends up meaning is like, if you, Ross, make an app and I, Corey, want to buy it from you to run on my phone, which I own, yeah, and Apple doesn't say yes, then it becomes a copyright violation for you, the proprietor of the copyright, to sell me the copyrighted work to run on a device that I own. Which feels like such a, a sneaky way to use a law that was not written for that purpose. Yeah, although I think that the legislative history says that the people who were involved knew perfectly well what they were oh, doing. Oh, okay. But, okay. You know, they, uh, certainly they were warned. We've stumbled across <laughs> another conspiracy. Yeah, well, I mean, there was just, there. like, if you go back and read, say, Pam Samuelson writing about the DMCA in the, okay. in the you know, 96 through 98, in the run-up to its passage she's like this is going to happen right so either they ignored it okay. or they knew it and, and it was a feature Could see it coming it. yeah um but the point being that um that's a rent extraction mechanism as well as a market structuring mechanism so it, yeah. it on the one hand it gives apple the power to decide which apps exist but it also gives apple the power to extract rent from every app right every app that's sold and yeah so that is like the definition of not a free market it is. Yeah. in the sense that it's a market dominated by rents so as individuals does it help to sign yeah. petitions to so contact this is one of those things that's like it's it's hard to shop your way at a monopoly capitalism yes right, right. yeah uh, there's not always an alternative but one of the reasons I got in touch with Carrie because I am often fizzing with thoughts when I listen to you guys. <laughs> I love your show. Uh, I'm, I'm glad it brimmed over this time. One of the reasons I got in touch with Carrie is this is a moment where we can actually do something at least about broadband because we are at a turning point on broadband. So last July, California passed sweeping broadband legislation, uh, creating um, it's about $3.5 billion for uh, subsidy for underserved areas for fiber rollout, another two and a half billion for what's called middle mile, which is stuff that goes from a city limit to a city limit. And then then it's up to the local. And then it's up to the local authority to get it to the homes. And they created a loan pool facility where they have these very low interest loans that are underwritten by the state that cities can get without having to float a bond where they can um, get the loan to run fiber to every household. I love it. And and, and I love that we provision first the hard to reach and the right. underserved communities because we know everybody else with all the money, they're going to follow along. And, and we know how to do it, right? Like yeah. this is the thing is we act as though getting wires out to remote places, which have like a gas main, a water main, electricity, and, electricity yeah. and a phone line. Yeah. Like these are not, it's not like, it we, can it's be not done. like the pyramids or something. We've <laughs> forgotten how to build them, right? Like yeah. we know how they were built, but um, the cost basis at the price that they are giving money out, mm -hmm. uh, they're lending money out, makes uh, fiber provision profitable at two and a half people per square mile. Wow. So we are to, at, wow. at $100 a month for uh, gigabit fiber, symmetrical gigabit fiber. And this is a problem that private industry just couldn't solve. Because they are they don't like long amortization schedules, yeah. blah, 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 blah. So that's so, a great opportunity for a, a federal uh, approach well, or a state, state level. This is approach, a state yeah. thing. And then the thing is that on the one hand, it's great that it's being left up to the municipalities because these, these need to be local initiatives. On the other hand, it opens the possibility that municipalities won't react to the stimulus. 
Chambers of Commerce are very hostile to this for the most part. Hmm. I know when I raised this issue with our council here that the Chamber of Commerce was very skeptical about getting fiber from our municipal fiber loop to terminated in people's homes. And, you know, because they'd been listening to the telecom companies? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, their membership includes telcos, right? Okay. And the telcos are much bigger members than the SMEs. Okay. And, you know, like there are a lot of people in our neighborhood who are audio and video editors and animators and CG people. Yeah, this is Burbank. Who've been locked down, right? And they've been screwed. I know a video editor who was going into the studio to download files every morning (laughs) on a physical disc on physical discs and then driving home and having to do like the whole pass thing because they had locked the studios down you know and it's to go a couple of miles right like there's there's no reason that he shouldn't have been able to do it from work my wife's had to go and park at the gates of the studio and jump on the wi-fi to get (laughs) to do certain things right so yeah this this is wild this is not a good situation to be in it's good economic development sense but people at the municipal level need to get involved to make sure their cities tap into these facilities In addition to all of this, there's a technical assistance facility. All of this is modeled on the way that telephone electrification was rolled out in the New Deal era, where you had municipalities setting up their own phone lines, setting up their own electricity. And, you know, like they might have had electrical engineers who lived in those cities and stuff, but it's not enough to be an electrical engineer to do a citywide rollout of electrical service, Mm. right? That is a specialized thing with a lot of pitfalls. It's very expensive. It's got a lot of um, high stakes. You get something wrong, you create structural problems that could cost a lot of money to unwind and produce an unreliable So you need guidance. So you need guidance. So they have have an expertise pool as well. So they will provide guidance to cities. So this is great. And the way that these are going to be run is they're wholesale providers. So local organizations can provide retail service on top of them. So you could start an ISP, you can drum up business with customers, you can offer them bandwidth that you buy wholesale from the city, and you provide modems and support and whatever, right? Installation. It's a model that's worked really well in lots of places. It's a model that worked really well in America until I think 2005. So when DSL was first commercialized and rolled out, the incumbent phone companies, what were called the ILEX, were required to do something called essential facility sharing, where an ISP could go into the central office for the incumbent carrier, the local provider, and install their own DSL card in what was called the DSLAM, the DSL router, okay. and connect it to a line that went to your house and be your ISP. Hmm. And they would pay rent to Pac Bell or whoever, and then you would pay service charges to them. And there were a thousand ISPs in America. Oh, yeah, I and remember George that. George W. Bush terminated the essential facilities rule. Ah. And broadband got more expensive. It got not slower, but the rate at which it was getting faster slowed down. Infrastructure investment went way down and federal funding for infrastructure investment was squandered. So they gave out $45 billion for federal infrastructure spending on broadband like eight years ago. And the ISPs, the telcos spent it all on copper. Oh, yeah. Which is just bananas. So just billions of dollars uh, wasted. Just $45 billion flushed down the toilet. And so that, so these are this is run on that kind of essential facilities model, except the, yeah. essential, the essential facility is run by this, the city. And then private businesses can offer service on top of it. Okay. Co-ops, individuals, startups, big firms, small firms. I guess in theory, like Disney could become an ISP for its workers. Okay. And yeah. could offer like a, an always-on VPN for fast service for your video files and so on, like all of that stuff, all yeah. that really good stuff that that just makes life easy. Cool. And then federally, the infrastructure bill has another $65 billion appropriated for state grants for fiber rollouts. 
It also has extra money for especially underserved areas. And in both cases, they prohibit digital redlining. So a lot of the times what you see in neighborhoods is that when you have the old red lines, which are the um, the lines that divide neighborhoods where there are restrictive covenants that prohibited selling houses to people of color. Right. This is an old phrasing for essentially just racist policies that would marginalize poor people. And those are houses that have like, they're closer to uh, environmental hazards. They're yeah, the highways run through their backyards and they have worse broadband. Right. And so, you know, these broadband deserts became really apparent during the lockdown when you had kids like taking tests from the parking lots of a Taco Bell. Uh, right. Because that was the only place to get Wi-Fi. That's one of those instances where you put a human face on it and all of a sudden people get it. Oh, like, oh, just wow. something. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of states are going to take advantage of it. But these block grants, they're a bit like Medicare expansion under ACA. Yeah. They only work if the state uses them. I'm glad there's a silver lining for Internet. So generally, though, for our listeners as individuals, as they're trying to navigate this world and, and advocate for the best in so, yeah, social media and be, search engines. You need to get well. So it's a rare thing that there's an individual action to support a systemic thing. I mean, there are systemic ways to do it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there are lots of ways in which monopolies hurt us, right? They they hurt us as merchants. So the merchants are getting screwed by Amazon. There's lots of small business organizations that are trying to do better. Uh, They hurt us as workers. So, you know, if you think about Amazon drivers or Google moderators or Facebook moderators, or even their techies walking out or their warehouse workers, the unionization drives, all of those things could use your support. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are lots of opportunities for solidarity. They corrupt our policy policy sphere. So, you know, the U.S. doesn't have a federal privacy law. Organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, yeah. for whom I've worked now for 20 years, EFF.org. You can support them. You can support other yeah. privacy-centric orgs. As they used to say on the BBC, other privacy organizations are available. Uh, <laughs> we and, won't list them for you, yeah, but you but can there, find there are lots of There are lots of those things. Yeah. But this is an area in which your personal letter actually makes a difference. Yeah, okay. So your, here in California, if you're in California, your local government actually cares about you in a way that is much more significant than the way that any other Hmm. government cares about you because your vote counts, Mm. right? Like no one turns out to vote in municipal elections. Municipal turnouts are dismal. And so if you write in and you say like, look, this matters to me, they care. You can go to your town council meetings. In fact, probably it's on Zoom now. And so you can just find out when your town council meeting is. They will all have five-minute open comment periods. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of the times, people who are trying to break into stand-up will do oh, no, really? five minutes. I was waiting for you to say something Very about weird. anti-maskers There's or that too. No, okay. no, no, there's that too. But also people doing bad stand-up. Oh, goodness. Because Ellen put someone who went viral on YouTube. Oh, no, on her show. Ellen. What and are you now doing? It's, now it's everywhere. It's like <laughs> the least of the things that we can indict Ellen for. And yet, here we are. But you can get on your, you can go to your five-minute open comment and just tell your city council, I understand that there's a loan facility and direct cash transfers to our city from the state of California and the federal government that lets us put fiber how are we using that how are we using it let's do it yeah i want it right i want it i don't want charter like let me tell you a little about charter spectrum okay their ceo was the highest compensated ceo in america the year of the lockdown Hmm. he insisted after the lockdown long into the lockdown when all of their businesses had shut down that all of the workers who could work remotely nevertheless come into the office so he could keep an eye on them oh cool they gave no ppe to the service technicians who came into our homes nor did they give hazard pay to them. I'm shaking my head over here. They gave them vouchers for restaurants that had shut down during the lockdown. What? As has in lieu of hazard wow. pay. Wow. Oh my goodness. And they are the people who gave us the janky internet 
that made life so miserable during lockdown, right? Yeah. And they are the ones distorting our policy. So like, go ahead and say, look, I don't love yeah. my ISP. One of the things the ISPs say, it's the same thing that the um, uh, health insurers say, right? People love their ISP. Nobody loves their ISP. Right, <laughs> right. yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know? I'm trying to think of like an equivalent industry, but yeah, yeah, nobody- uh... Nobody loves writes, their ISP. Writes positive Yelp reviews or what have you. So I guess this is something where we can kind of mimic what the anti-5G crowd is doing by getting active and being vocal. Sure, but except to the except that it's even better for us. Yeah. Because the 5G people are like showing up and they're trying to create a crack in a smooth surface, mm -hmm. right? There is no like open docket. There's no federal funding. There's no open question for like, when do we tear down the 5G towers? Right. Right. They're trying to create that as a new issue. So here there's an opportunity. Go seize it. Yeah. This is like, we've got momentum, right? Yeah. Like show up and say now the total California uh, tranche with state and federal money is seven and a half billion dollars. Just show up and tell the story of you and your kids during lockdown and say like, I want that money is ours by right. It's public money that we paid in. We were, It's being paid back out. I benefit every day from the power line that runs into my house and from the sewage yeah. line and from the uh, water lines. And I want a internet line that is uh, high quality and fast and reliable and symmetrical yeah. that isn't geared to like turning me into a mouse potato where I can upload <laughs> as fast as I can download. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. uh, it's so grossly insulting so that it, carriers think that we don't need symmetrical broadband. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah, they don't need upload. Well, if we had it, we'd use it. So if you're in California, go seize it. And yeah, then if and, you're- and in every other state, find out where your state's at. Right. Go find yeah. a way like right to your state legislatures, because, again, they're not as responsive as your local counselors, but they're still responsive right to your state legislatures. And to our international listeners, a lot of you are already well ahead of us because. Yeah, uh, that's true. What, the U.S. is kind of behind on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the stories are so inspirational. There's a great story about this town in Appalachia. It's the poorest white oh, majority county yeah. in America. Obviously, the poorest counties in America are majority people of color, but it's the poorest white majority county in America. In Appalachia, I believe in Kentucky, where they use some of the Rural Opportunity Fund that was given not to a monopoly carrier, but to a cooperative that was a descendant of their New Deal era telephone co-op, hmm. who decided to put fiber everywhere, including their most rural homes. And they had a mule called Old Bub <laughs> that could scale the mountain passes with its sure-footed mule feet. This is amazing. And they dragged fiber through the town. And this was before <laughs> lockdown and, and pandemic where remote work was still something that was rare. And they formed a really significant remote work pool and their median wage shot up to $25 an hour from this incredibly economically depressed area. And they had all kinds of weird jobs. I mean, one of them was that there was there was a boom in hiring people from this region to teach English to wealthy Chinese kids. Yeah. Who now all speak with this incredible Appalachian accent. That's amazing. <laughs> Which is just great. And so, you know, the, I the, love stories the like that. opportunities are incredible. <laughs> you know, the, there was a study PricewaterhouseCooper did in the UK for uh, Martha Lane Fox when she was the national champion for broadband on the impact of giving broadband to people. And it, they had a natural experiment because there are these council blocks, these subsidized housing, government housing blocks. And some of them were close enough to the telephone central office to put DSL in and some weren't. And so they had blocks of people who were demographically very similar, who live very close to each other, and the difference was one had broadband and the other one didn't. Oh. And so they were able you to got then like assess a true the twin outcomes. study. Yeah. 
Amazing. they found that everything that we use to measure the quality of life in a advanced society goes up. You know, Let's do it, people. Let's just do it. Politics. I love the story with old Bub. That's so good. All of it. You um, know? Fantastic. Well, I was hoping maybe you could puncture another one of these myths about just how powerful the surveillance capitalist companies are. We all have the experience of having had a conversation with uh-huh. somebody. You know, like I were talking about, hey, did you know about old Bub the mule and uh, drag fiber across the mountains? And then I go sit down on my computer and all of a sudden I see ads for fiber. Right. Can they do that? Are they listening to us? Is our Alexa like pulling ads? No, they're probably, well, okay, your Alexa probably is listening to you, but not that way. So your Alexa has a wake word mm-hmm. and, and it actually doesn't just have a wake word. It has a spectrum of sounds that it interprets as a wake word, mm. as does your Siri in, yeah. in your OK Google and yep. whatever. And uh, they all, um, they don't just have one wake word, they have multiple wake words and sometimes they have wake words in multiple languages. It turns out that there's a lot of different sounds that okay. make them start recording and transmitting. And they also transmit a lot of what you say to third parties for uh, performance improvement. And they, even when they claim they don't, they do, right? They yeah. just keep getting caught over and over and over and over and over and over again. Putting people in bad situations. Promising, yeah. Well, and promising that they haven't done it. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out, oh, yeah, no, there's that one group of like traumatized subcontractors in the Czech Republic who are being <laughs> sent all of your, you know, So audio we can't take like their word for... Murders caught on Alexas and stuff. Okay, so that's real. Yeah. So, th- so that part like does happen. It's not deliberate in the way that we think of deliberate. Like it is on purpose, but it's not on purpose because they want to sell you ads. It's on purpose because they want to do stuff that is a little sketchy or maybe even a lot sketchy and they don't want to explain to you why you shouldn't worry about it. So they just don't tell you about it. Okay. And it's bad, right? But it's not that, it's not what we think, right? It's just a different bad. Like I I remember having a conversation with my coworker near his desk and it was about like a brand of cereal and it just came up and it had been a long time since either of us had thought about it. And then he had an ad on his computer for that cereal. So then then the other thing is that there's actually, well, there's two other things at work here. One is confirmation bias. You just don't remember all yes, the times yes. that you had a conversation and it didn't Something show we talk about regularly on the yeah. show. And then the other one is which way the causal arrow goes. Why did you talk about that cereal? Like, do you remember how that cereal came Actually, out? Yeah, I don't remember the specific Was it on your there. mind because maybe you saw an ad for it earlier? Maybe. Was there a campaign that it launched? Did someone on Twitter write, oh, there's this fucking weird ad for the cereal I used to eat? Now this is sounding like a mentalism trick. Yeah, right. I, I wish I could give you more context. But, yeah, yeah. but I think we've all had that experience. We're like, whoa, sure. that felt a little too on the nose. I, I mean, and I get it. And I've I've been there as well. But and sometimes it is just an amazing coincidence. Yeah, and and you know, like, I do think that they spy on us and then show us ads based on what they're looking at. But I think that the seeing the ad and having the later conversation are both products of an event in which we did something, mm-hmm. right? Like we searched for the thing that we're now seeing the ad for. Yeah. And we talked about the thing. Yeah, okay. Because we searched for it. Yeah. So, and we learned something about it. And then we forgot our uh, causality. And then we forgot the cause because, yeah. <laughs> because most of what we do doesn't doesn't surface. I have a relatively high degree of confidence based on like scholarship and teardowns and controlled experiments and mm-hmm. so on. I don't think that they like don't do it because they're they have an ethical objection to it. I think that it it's kind of it would be an expensive source of low quality data mm. that would be hard to process and would yield very little dividend. Okay. Uh, another question I'll ask on behalf of our listeners sure. is since you have so much interest in this space, do you have any like special personal hacks or tips or tricks? Like do you use dogpile for search or you build mm. your own phone? So I would VPN? say that if you want to play with some really lovely interoperable hardware, like yeah. open hardware, this laptop that's on the desk is a framework laptop. Oh, 
and they are the second laptop in history to get a 10 out of 10 from iFixit for repairability. Oh, cool. It's held together with six captive screws in the bottom. It comes with a screwdriver. That's a big issue that we didn't quite get to, which is all right these companies that yeah keep you from actually so repairing the, the your device. The bezel swaps out. It's magnetic, so you just swap Whoa. the bezel out. Um, the webcam. When he's you want he's to... pulling the orange. Uh, yeah, this screen. is an aftermarket bezel. I bought the cool aftermarket. That's bezel. so cool. And now I'm seeing the circuitry. I'm seeing the There's camera. There's the webcam and, and yeah. mic. So I actually managed to smash that because these are little um, uh, lens covers. But you can and, replace it if you need to. And I replaced it. It took me two minutes. It's those two screws. Wow. And then you put it back in. And I got like the first batch. So I had a hinge problem and I had to replace the hinges. It took me 15 minutes. It comes as, you can, I think you can get them assembled now, but it came as a bag of parts. So you have to install like the hard drive and the RAM and, and the Wi-Fi card and so on. The Wi-Fi card's a little finicky because you have to get these tiny little antenna connectors on. Okay. But apart from that, it was really straightforward. Cool. And it's fully upgradable. From the keyboard and the overall design out of the corner of my eye, I just thought it was some sort of Apple Yeah, everybody product. thinks it's a MacBook. Yeah. And it's not. And it's like, I used to buy ThinkPads and like now I buy this. That's great. And I'm running Linux on it, but you don't have to. You can run Windows on it okay. uh, if that's how you roll. And so if you're looking for some beautiful, moderately priced, highly repairable, long-lived open hardware, I would go with Framework. And it's like one of the most exciting hardware stories of my life. Yeah. You know, like yeah, I haven't felt so this cool. excited about a laptop since I got my first PowerBook. That's awesome. I, it's so great. To, and I, you know, I'm someone who's very hard on my equipment. And I, when I was a Mac guy, I used to have two Macs at a time because you would have to send one to Apple Care when it broke and it'd be gone for three weeks <laughs> yeah. and I couldn't be without a computer. So you need your rental so car essentially. Two. Yeah. And then I went to ThinkPads because Lenovo, well, IBM back then had a $150 a year next day on-site worldwide hardware replacement warranty. Okay. So literally they'd show up at your hotel in Mumbai. This happened to me once and fix your laptop on your desk wow. within 24 hours. Cool. But that has gotten super crapified since Lenovo bought them out. Okay. So for me, like the reliability is so much more important than the features themselves, although it's very featureful and I love it. It's fast and and has a high capacity battery and all the rest of it. But like, I'm way more interested in how it fails than how it works. Okay. And it fails so gracefully. <laughs> like, it's just great. Like, I'm really seriously contemplating just buying a bag of replacement parts and sticking it in a drawer so that, you know, when I drop it, I can just fix it. That's great. It's, okay. Every, every part has got a QR code on it and you just take a picture of it with your phone and then it brings up the, a video showing you how to repair it or Wow, it's it. really built for makers. It's so great. That's it's so fantastic. Great. In fact, it's built for people who aren't makers but want to be. Okay. In terms of information security, the single one best absolute thing that you can do is get a password manager and mm. turn on two-factor authentication. Okay. Everything else is a rounding error on that. Just like you should not be able to remember any of your passwords. If you can remember your password, a computer can guess your password. Okay. Right? So you should just have passwords that are like however long it'll accept, 128 characters, random noise that you can't remember or type yeah. that last pass or one pass or whatever password manager you're using just enters into all the fields you need. And you can do things with it like you can give your partner or your lawyer or some other person uh, a login to that yeah. so that we are now at the point where we're starting to get the leading crest of horror stories of people who get hit by a bus or have a stroke and then like their partner yeah. can't access any of their family I, I, Every now and then or, I... Give my wife just a little reminder test to make sure she knows the password to I our password manager. I have a data will uh, that is in my lawyer's filing cabinet. And my, I say my lawyer. It's my boss at EFF. But that's in my my friend and lawyer's uh, filing cabinet. Yeah. I have a data will that just explains where, Smart. how to get into my stuff, where my passwords are. And so your life is in a living use. hell after I die yeah. for other reasons other than me having right. died. And so, and also like, and I also, I found someone whose judgment I trust. Mm -hmm. And the reason I didn't just give it to my wife is I am 
paranoid. So this is where I'm going to start to sound like conspiratorialist. <laughs> I was like, I just don't want my wife to be in a position where someone can compel her to tell her my passwords. Oh, okay. Only because like, I'm not a citizen and I worry about getting stopped at the border. Oh yeah, you're and Canadian. I, and I'm Canadian. I did work with Snowden. I just like, I just kind of had this kind of like, what I did was I sat down and I said, the extra work necessary for making sure that my wife is never going to be in that position mm. is about an extra hour. So the chances are very long that it would ever be a problem, but the benefits are really tangible and the price of insuring against it is so small. Why not? Okay. Right. So okay. that's where I got to with that. So yeah. Good double, tips. Two-factor authentication, not yes. SMS if possible. Use the app on your phone. Because oh, that can be uh, intercepted. intercepted. Okay. And use it for everything. Use good, strong passwords for everything. The one password you should be able to remember is the password to open your <laughs> password manager. And, and that should be a good long password. it should be a good long one. And then all the other ones should be things that you can't remember or spell out or give to anyone. And it's a pain in the ass because your partner will say to you, hey, can I get the password for Burbank Water and Power? I want to pay the bill. And you yep. will have to say, yep. I'll send it to you by signal and copy and paste it, right? Or yeah. share it with them through LastPass. Or oh, you password. want on to Netflix? This is going to take a bit. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. But, but at the same time, it's so much better because when you start recycling weak passwords, then you don't know, you, you lose track of the context and like something that you thought was not a big deal mm -hmm. becomes very central and has some really important private information. Something unimportant leaks your password and then that password can be reused in something that used to be unimportant, but is now really important and yeah. has important information. And then you're in a world of hurt, Yeah, you know? And so, yeah, it's, I, I, those are my major pieces of advice. Okay. That's great. And just for anybody who's interacting with a conspiracy theorist on any one of these many topics, you know, there's so many related right. QAnon, 9-11 truth, the flat earth movement, vaccine. Do you have kind of just a general approach I wish I was better at this. Yeah. I mean, I, that's one of the reasons I listen to you guys so much. I have people I really love who I've lost to this stuff. Family and, and dear old friends who, at best, there's like a, a lacuna in our relationship. There's mm. just a no-go zone. Yeah. But at worst, there's just people I don't talk to anymore. Yeah. And I, I, I think about it and regret it all the time. All the time. I wish I knew how to get through to them. And uh, it's very hard with vaccines because some of these people are sick. Mm -hmm. and, and, I and, you know, you automatically say, were you vaccinated? And then you remember. And then they're like, why are you, why are you trying to start a fight? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I guess from this conversation, I think maybe we can responsibly say that if we all fight for a better world where we have better services, yeah. that removing sort of that general shared distrust of bad actors will leave less oxygen for conspiracy theory. Credible institutions that mm -hmm. adjudicate difficult truth claims are one of the best panaceas we have for conspiratorial thinking. Yeah. Right? Because even the the most skeptical skeptic is taking most of what they think they know on faith. Right? And so the the epistemological basis for taking it on faith is to really I I sometimes use this metaphor that the method is like a box and you can teach people to assess the quality of the box. Hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. you, like is it square? <laughs> is it robust? Are the sides strong? Has it been bashed? Is it a good Yeah, is it uh, like is there a hole in it? Yeah. Right? We don't necessarily understand what's going on in the box a right. lot of the time, but the shape of the box is something that we can all inspect and agree on. Mm. It's not that we don't trust robust boxes, although I think we don't now, but a lot of our boxes are manifestly crumpled. <laughs> yes. Know, yeah. Obviously in bad shape. Right. And so when that happens, 
And and again, this is one of those things where I think we need to not just restore people who aren't corrupt, but we need to restore rules that prevent the appearance of corruption. Like I am willing to stipulate that there are people in industry who really understand their industry and would be good regulators of it. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that they should have those jobs, right? At least not without a significant gap in yeah. between. Because I, I just think that they, it's for the same reason that there are like definitely judges who could be really fair in a lawsuit in which you were suing their kid. Mm, you're right. <laughs> they still shouldn't preside over those cases. They should recuse themselves. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's tough because, yeah, usually the qualification to be in that sort of regulatory position is having worked in the industry. Yeah. 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 That's a that's I a just tough think problem. that you, you promoting a referee who used to play for one of the teams is always going to make real problems for any match that they oversee yeah. where that team is playing. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, you saw I brought like uh, two pages of uh, notes and stuff, but I didn't even look at it because I, I, I knew this would be a wide ranging and uh, fascinating conversation. We could talk endlessly about related topics. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ross. Corey, it's, uh, for being I'm, on the it's show. A dream come true. It's my I like going through my maximum fun bucket list. So, ah, fantastic. so I've, I've done uh, Hodgman. Now I've done you. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah, I, I'm hoping for Bullseye when my next book comes out. Good company. OK. We'll see. Excellent. Yeah. All right. I'll try to uh, grease the wheels with Jesse Thorne yeah. there. How should people follow you? Online and uh, elsewhere. I am Dr. O on Twitter and Pluralistic.net. And Pluralistic is a blog and newsletter. It also shows up as daily Twitter threads. It is surveillance-free, ad-free, and tracker-free. I Literally to the point where I don't know how many people read it because I have no counter wow. or anything. I, do it, I throw away my logs. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. Well, thanks again to Corey Doctorow for a fascinating and wide-ranging discussion. I learned a lot. I hope you did too. And that's it for our show. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton. Our administrative manager is Ian Kramer. You can support this podcast by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org slash join. That's how you become part of the family. You can also buy a Jumbotron. You can leave a positive review wherever you found this podcast. You can tell a friend. And remember, a local news story that Corey shared with me that I think is fantastic. Aaron Epstein is 90 years old. He lives in North Hollywood, where he says streaming speeds are abysmally slow. So he decided to take out two ads in the Wall Street Journal, calling out AT&T directly for letting him down. KTLA's Kimberly Cheng has the story. His goal was to get a response. People told him to put it out there on social media, but he's not familiar with it, so he went with what he knows. When you watch TV, with three megabytes a second, sometimes it's smoothly, but more often than not, it's very jerky. It's what's called buffering. North Hollywood resident Aaron Epstein has been a loyal AT&T customer since 1960. As his tech needs increased, the 90-year-old said his internet service just wasn't keeping up. Kept calling AT&T, when are you going to give us a faster speed? And they said, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, coming. But what really made me angry was they started putting ads in the paper and sending email. And it's putting on uh, ads on the Internet. Try our faster speed. But that faster speed, he was told by representatives, wasn't available in his area. Fed up, he placed two ads in the Wall Street Journal to vent his frustrations at a cost of about $10,000. 
In the ads, an open letter to the CEO ending with the question, Why is ATT treating us so shabbily in North Hollywood? The ads ran February 3rd. In the Dallas, Texas edition of the Wall Street Journal, because I wanted to reach the executive offices of ATT, and the ad also was published in the New York edition of Wall Street Journal because I wanted to reach the investors. His ads grabbed more attention than that. It was shared around the country. Epstein says he received a call from the ATT executive offices. We're going to see what we're going to can do for you. He considers that $10,000, which might have otherwise gone to an annual vacation, money well spent. The money that we could have spent for these other luxuries is going for something that is also giving us pleasure. It seems to him the squeaky wheel gets the grease. If they put fiber optics in my neighborhood, they have to string a wire and that wire will go up and down my block so all of my neighbors will be able to get fiber optics. An AT&T spokesperson sent me a statement that read in part, they continually enhance and invest in their networks and invested $3.1 billion in the LA area from 2017 to 2019. And they also said they are in contact with the customer. Epstein said if they don't speed things up, he might take his business elsewhere, but that's something that he was trying to avoid. In North Hollywood, Kimberly Chang, KTLA 5 News. Did your neighbor back into your car? Bring that case to Judge Judy. Think the mailman might be the real father? Give that one to Judge Mathis. But does your mom want you to flush her ashes down the toilet at Disney World when she passes away? Now that's my jurisdiction. Welcome to the court of Judge John Hodgman, where the people are real, the disputes are real, and the stakes are often unusual. If I got arrested for dumping your ashes in the Jungle Cruise, it would be an honor. I don't want to be part of somebody getting a super yacht. I don't know at what point you want to go into this, but we've had a worm bin before. Available free right now at MaximumFun.org. Judge John Hodgman, the court of last resort when your wife won't stop pretending to be a cat and knocking the clean laundry over. Hey, kid. Your dad tell you about the time he broke Stephen Dorff's nose at the Kids' Choice Awards? <laughs> In Dead Pilot Society, scripts that were developed by studios and networks but were never produced are given the table reads they deserve. When I was a kid, I had to spend my Christmas break filming a PSA about angel dust. So yeah, being a kid sucks sometimes. Presented by Andrew Reich and Ben Blacker. Dead Pilot Society, twice a month on MaximumFun.org. You know, the show you like, that hobo with the scarf who lives in a magic dumpster. <laughs> Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.